Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Good evening, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, a movie review podcast with mm-hmm. we're scary noises. <laughs> my name is William Bibiani. I am a critic for The Rap and Consequence. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I write for Slash Film, and uh, I guess it's spooky season. It is. It is scary tober. <laughs> Here, critically getting a bit of a late start to Scary Tober. I like Scary Tober. If uh, I was lucky enough mm. when uh, Disneyland's Haunted Mansion mm. was celebrating, I think it's 30th anniversary. So this was mm. a while back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you could go to the park at that point. I think this was the last time I went to the park. It was like 20 years ago. But uh, you could buy a CD. That had not just mm. the full narration oh, yeah. from the ride, yeah, 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 which was rare at the time. Yeah, you could like li- you can like listen to it at home, and they'd walk you through the whole ride and just listen yeah, to the whole yeah. thing. Like, who was, was it? Who was it? Is it Paul Freese? Paul Freese. Paul Freese was, yeah. oh. was the the narrator. Oh my and, uh, god, the amazing elocution of Paul Freese. <laughs> uh, uh. Welcome, foolish mortals. Like, yes. yeah, that's Paul Freese. Oh, uh, he's amazing. One of the and, great movie. Vo- uh, one of the great voices. Could, period. And. Paul Freese did his voice as the ghost host of, yeah. of the Haunted Mansion, but that CD also had, uh, like, audition narrations. Yeah. Like, other actors. No, that CD's great. That's, yeah. uh, uh, my, my partner, uh, mm. M, they have, um, they have that on their iPod in the car. Nice. Every once in a while it just pops up, and we just mm. go to the Haunted Mansion, or what yeah. we? Like, listen, I, I have issues with Disney, but when they do something right, they do something great, and the Haunted Mansion is one of the greatest things they've ever done. <laughs> it is unabashedly great. Great as an experience. I, uh, I I kind of loathe Disneyland. Like I mm-hmm. kind of liked it as a kid. I preferred yeah. the thrill ride parks, like Magic, okay. Six Flags Magic Mountain. I, I, was, I was more jam. of an experienced kid. The thrill rides are just sort of like, and now we're in, we're on this weird upsy doodly yeah, train. I, I, I like. I like, up- I, I, I like the storytelling personally. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, Disneyland was less my jam, and sure. you know, just as I got older, it got like less and less appealing until mm-hmm. it just became repellent. Uh, so I haven't been for a long time, but I still have a soft spot for the Haunted Mansion. That's like yeah. the one thing left. Yeah, it's like uh, I, they, I, I'm really every night. I hope it's a small world just burns down. Oh, stop. Uh, like that can that can go that away is, forever. That is an institution. We're gonna let it's let an institution. It. We can burn to the ground. Here's here's <laughs> what I will say. What, actually, actually, I want to make a note because we're actually. You know what? Fuck it. We're going to start with the Disney thing. We're going right. to... Uh, uh, we're, we actually got a couple of Disney things. Muppet Haunted Mansion. Well, no. Yeah. We did that last year. That's they did a Halloween I, I, special. I did watch Muppet that this year. Though. Yeah. It's okay. It's not great. It's, it's okay. It's they, they, yeah. they clearly. I think it's something that if they'd had the Muppet team they had 20 years ago, it would have been magical. Mm. But here, it's, the, the it's a mixed Muppet bag. Uh, What's wrong with Kermit's voice? It's, not, know, it's, so, it's so different. It's so. It's like it, I get it. It's not the same voice. You're not even trying to make it like close. It's weird. No continuity. But anyway, uh, we're reviewing this week uncritically acclaimed. We're reviewing uh, Disney's Hellraiser, uh, which yeah. is they they there's not, a Hulu not, ex- not Disney's first Hellraiser. 
Because no. Dis- Disney uh, owns Miramax back in the 90s. Oh, shit. Which, and, they did uh, Bloodline. Mir- and Miramax owns Dimension Films, which put out Hellraiser Bloodline. Oh, my God. So uh, Disney owns Hellraiser 4 and 11, and nice. none of the others. I don't know if, they're, <laughs> if they own it or just distributing it, but yeah. regardless, it's an Hulu exclusive. Disney's got a Hellraiser movie out. Uh, they've also got Disney's Werewolf by Night, which is their sort of superhero monster Halloween special thing this year. Yeah. Um, and that's and that's an hour long, which according to the Academy, technically a movie. We're gonna let them out. Fifty three minutes, and that is feature length. Yep, uh, we as, we've as reviewed feature length films that are shorter than that. Mm. Uh, one of the greatest feature films of all time, Sherlock Junior, is a is a stalwart forty five. Yeah, so <laughs> it's like barely a feature. I don't care what Disney and, says. We're counting that as a movie. We're also reviewing uh, the new indie feature, Triangle of Sadness. Todd Fields is Tar, and the new uh, Stephen King adaptation on Netflix, Mister Harrigan's Phone. Um, but before we get into it, I just want to point out, I, I, Disney Plus, mm-hmm. Disney Plus is good for, I have had the worst fucking week ever and I need some <laughs> comfort and it's, they'll it's have, just all, it's simple, it's friendly, yeah. it's kid friendly. I, it's, yeah. They, that, that that stuff. That's so what, what Disney Plus does. I, I watched the, uh, we watched just because we had such a rough week, we watched the trick or treat cartoon special with Huey, Dewey, and Louie teaming up with Witch Hazel oh, to, okay, yeah. to torture Donald not, at not, uh, not Halloween. Witch Hazel, that's Warner Brothers. No, it's the same witch. It's, it's Witch Hazel? Witch Hazel is, she's, the, she's Witch Hazel in Disney, she's Witch Hazel in Warner Brothers, and is it's it the tr- same voice. It's, uh, it's June the same, Foray. June Foray. It's the same actor. Wow, okay. It's, it's like this weird <laughs> singularity. It's the one character who exists in both universes. Is Witch Hazel. It's, I don't know why they picked Witch Hazel. I don't know why. They, I guess they came to an agreement. Hilarious. She's great. I love it. That's a wonderful cartoon spot. Short, if you've never seen it, you got to watch it. They have a new-ish one. I thought it was brand new because I'd never heard of it. Mm. Turns out it's five fucking years old and I could have been watching this thing for half a decade. Uh, it's called The Scariest Story Ever. Okay. A Mickey Mouse Halloween spooktacular. And that thing is charming as fuck. <laughs> the newer animated version of Mickey that hmm. Disney's been putting out for the oh, last... Is, is it that version yeah. of Mickey? Oh, okay. That yeah. version of Mickey, that is the best Mickey. What I find really unusual is... I I, I like this new Mickey. Like these new... Because yeah. Mi- Mickey Mouse has no character whatsoever. Mickey no. Mickey Mouse is, is like a, a cookie it, that you forgot to put sugar he, he, in. He's it's, an uh, amiable protagonist. Yeah, that's it. That's all Mickey like, it, usually it's, it's, it's was. Like just an on-screen avatar, of yeah, some a likable uh, dude yeah. who gets into scrapes and gets himself out of it, and it does, does music does, sometimes. Does, yeah, it doesn't have like. Yeah, I think that's why people prefer characters like Donald Duck. Donald Duck is full of wrath. Mm-hmm. He, you know, has, has a personality yeah. trait. Uh, Goofy is a, a little is clueless. He yeah. is a more of a like Jim Varney set. type. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, Mickey, no character. None. This one, Mickey has a little character for Great like the character. first time in a uh, hundred years. He's, he's a hyperactive uh, showman. Mm. Like he really wants everyone to be happy and entertained. And mm. he, if they're not, he panics and the, it's really, the, really funny. What I find really unusual is that this Mickey is clearly drawing a lot. We'll get to the movies. Eventually. We will. Uh, uh, this Mickey is drawing a lot from that era of uh, care of, creator-based cartoons that were coming mm. up in the 1990s. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, all because of the Ren and Stimpy show, mostly. Well, yeah. The Ren and Stimpy show, Beef is and Butthead, shows like that, mm. were showing that a, a singular animator, a single creator, mm-hmm. uh, could kind of uh, create a show 
wholesale without relying on a property or, or yeah. what they called marquee value. Or and, and to be fair, or, we'd had this in movies before. Miyazaki already had his premature. Yeah, uh, Don Bluth kind of ruled the roost in the 80s. Well, but in and, TV, and, yeah. this was particular and interesting. Yeah, because yeah. TV was all like the Hanna-Barbera quick and dirty stuff. Or yeah. this is the 1980s. You had to have some product tied to it. You know, yeah. Oven and the Chipmunks could get made. He-Man yeah. could get made. Most, most kids couldn't uh, tell you who was responsible for most of the cartoons that they watched yeah, in the 80s. Like, maybe uh, the company because you'd see the the mm. you know Fritz Freeling like Fritz Freeling in front of it or whatever like that or, no I'm thinking Fritz Freeling no did. it's whatever the whatever the companies were but uh, in the 90s yeah. all of a sudden you knew who Gendy Tartakovsky was yeah you yeah. knew who Craig McCracken was yeah these and and I I feel like the creator's a creep but uh, the yeah. Ren and Stimpy show op- like kicked the door open for that uh, yeah and now. Like Disney is just catching up with that. Yeah. With like just to, they had the finally had the temerity to give a little bit of a wild animation style mm. to characters like Mickey and Donald and Goofy, Mickey which they had, were really protective of in the past. Mickey had been on model. I mean, his model had shifted over time, but he'd been on model for so long. Mm. He was just a thing to be preserved. Yeah. And they were not willing to take any risks with him. And and then just and it doesn't seem like much of a risk when you watch it, but when you, when you realize just how just how much of an old fogey Mickey was for mm. so long. Just the energy that these cartoons have. So if you, I, I'm just going to make it real fast. If you've never seen the scariest story ever, a Mickey Mouse Halloween spooktacular, it's a Halloween, it's half an hour. It's uh, Mickey trying to tell a scary story to Huey, Dewey, and Louie and two little mice kids I've never met before. I don't, maybe I didn't watch enough episodes mm. of the show um, on Halloween night, trying to scare the pants off of them. And it's really fucking funny. <laughs> like I, re- I laughed my butt off watching this like an hour ago. It was so great. So I needed that. So kudos. And I bring this up because we have two movies brought to you by Disney this week. Different vibes. Yeah, and both considerably considered Halloween specials. Th- I they're, they're definitely in the horror realm. And uh, one of which is from one of the most famous horror franchises. Even though... There hasn't been a theatrical release in that franchise in over 25 years. Has it really been that long? It's uh, Bloodlines. Well, theatrical was ni- release. Theatrical. Yeah, yeah, well, that's okay. That's actually, that, you know what? Thank you for checking me. That's not 100% accurate. Hellraiser, mm-hmm. based on the novel The Hellbound Heart by Clive Barker. I think it was a novella, but. Novella, 1986, yeah. 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 Uh, turned into the movie Hellraiser. The movie was an unexpected hit. Led to a sequel. The sequel's even better. We'll talk about the movies yeah, in a Cl- minute. Clive Barker wrote the original story. He wrote and directed that first movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he produced and came up with a story for uh, Hellbound Hellraiser 2 that was directed by Tony Randall. Mm-hmm. Not that Tony Randall. Uh, <laughs> I, I wish it was. I wish that was, that was like that's a, side, an odd couple. a side hustle for Tony Randall. Yeah. And then uh, and then they, they, the sequels just kept going. But after the fourth one, which had a smaller theatrical release it was credited to alan smithy which is the name that the director's guild used to give filmmakers who wanted their name taken yeah. off of a project it was actually a special effects guy named kevin yeager yeah and he he worked on a ton of stuff he was responsible mm. for a lot of the child's play movie effects that kind of thing um he uh uh the, the hellraiser movie started going straight to video for over 20 years and 90 not even 90 percent like all of them well, stink most of them are bad like, uh, like some of them are more watchable than others mm. and we'll t- i want to give you like a quick Sort of rundown of them, so we'll talk about them in a we, second. We, we've seen them all. <laughs> we, we need to sh- a. We're trying to show off, and b. We're trying to save you some trouble because <laughs> mm. most of them are not worth it. Um, but uh, where, where was where was he, where was he going with it? Just, just the, uh, many many straight to video sequels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, but there was one that did technically have the tiniest of theatrical screenings. Was it Hellraiser Revelation. 
Oh, okay, Revelation. Revelation or Revelations. I forget which one it is. Mm-hmm. Um, that one was on like two screens. Oh, wow. And it had, okay. Like for a weekend. I think it was contractually obligated. It had to come out like right. in a theater. So technically, <laughs> that had a release. But a wide release, we haven't had anything since 1996. And that That's was, that how, was Bloodline. Yeah. And yet, the iconography from Hellraiser is so ubiquitous. People know it, even if they've never seen the movie. You know the pale white person with the with the pins in their head. Mm. That's pinhead. It's too yeah. obvious. It's, you know that weird, creepy gold box, and how if you open it, it opens <laughs> a portal to hell. That's been turned into parody material for cartoons yeah. by now. Everyone just knows a, that gag. There's uh, look up um, pleasure toast on YouTube. <laughs> okay. There was a scene in uh, the venture, not uh, the Venture Brothers. Oh, okay. Uh, where that's the, like the Johnny Quest spoof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw the first and, uh, few seasons and I fell all, off. All of the villains were gathering for a party and they were trying to like put on shows for one another. Mm. And they cut away from the party and when they cut back, they're, like two of the characters were suspended by meat hooks with no <laughs> skin. And one guy's uh, like, he's kind of giggling to himself. I can't figure out this box. It's like he's trying to solve it. Yeah. And standing in between them is a toaster Cenobite. <laughs> he's got like a toaster instead of eyes <laughs> saying things like, your lust is hunger. Taste my toast, my pleasure toast. Look up pleasure toast. It's it, wonderful Hellraiser spoof. That's amazing. So uh, the basic premise, if you've never seen the original Hellraiser, here's the, here's the fundamental premise for the mythology. Hmm. There is a box. It is gold. It is gorgeous. It is hundreds of years old. In in the book, it's uh, straight black. Is it really? Like it's a black. Cube. I don't. I, it's been a while. So I haven't read the book since I was in like high school. But right. uh, in the movies, it's got this gorgeous sort of gold gilt to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you open this trick puzzle box, and it's very difficult. If you open the box, it opens a portal not to hell in like a in like a in like a Christian sense. Mm. In a, a sort of like a hell dimension kind of sense where things are really monstrous on the other side. And sadomasochists from Beyond the Grave, which is mm. the alternate title for the movie when it was originally in production. Was the, uh, that was uh, uh, Clive Barker's pitch. Yeah. Sadomasochists from Beyond the that Grave. Was, that was the original title they were working with. Hellraiser is better, but that's a good title. Uh, and even Hellraiser is a little ungainly. It's a little... It doesn't really... It's It only makes sense literally. Yeah. If you actually consider like the... the it is a pun. It makes no sense. Mm. They're not really raising hell over here. They're 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 raising hell. Oh my mm. god! You open this portal, and a whole bunch of people who are in the process of being tortured and like flayed alive. They got their skin peeled back. They have like things that are puncturing their body mm. as it speaks. So one one of them uh, has a wire contraption like holding her throat open. Yeah. One guy is his face is just nothing but scar tissue and his. Like a lips are pulled back, so you only see his teeth. Yeah, and he, he and he can't really talk. He just his his teeth like are like those just wind up teeth, like just constantly chattering. Yeah, he's called Chatterer. Although when I was a kid, everyone called him Chatterbox. I don't know when that changed. They, uh, well, they didn't have names. Not initially. In, in no. the original, um, they I guess one of them did. Uh, in the original Hellraiser, there were four Cenobites. Yeah. Uh, Cenobite is just a word that means like a, an adherent, like a yeah. worshiper, like a monk uh, or yeah. a priest or something. Yeah, it's like that, it's, yeah. it's it's a word. Clive Barker didn't make that up. Yeah. And. Uh, the lead Cenobite, which uh, Clive Barker prefers to call that character the Hell Priest, mm. um, was just credited as lead Cenobite, played yeah. by Doug Bradley. And there was uh, the female Cenobite. Yeah. The only descriptor we get that is a female character. There was the Chatterer. Yeah. And then then there was the one that they called Butterball. Oh, yeah. It was, it was a really big guy. It was really, like, yeah, big, 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 thick Cenobite. With yeah. 
also like kind of scarred up and had yeah. uh, eyes sewn shut. Um, really, really creepy. All of them. They mm-hmm. wore these long leather like kind of gowns yeah. with like parts of their bodies exposed. Yeah, pe- right. like you said, their pieces their their flesh yeah. were like hooked open. They look like they are like dressed up for Halloween at like the most intense BDSM bar you've ever been to, mm-hmm. and that's the aesthetic that they were going for. And the idea of these creatures isn't that they drag you to hell and that they to punish you for your sins. It's that you invited them. You right? opened the box on purpose. You're basically opening Pandora's box to get what's inside. And then these demons show up and they say, oh, okay, well, cool. Well, we'll give you everything you wanted. And what you get, your prize, is the most unbelievable sensation experience you could possibly imagine. But to the Cenobites, pain and pleasure are indivisible. Mm. They're just different ends of the same extreme. All they care about is sensation. So you will experience heights of pleasure and also the most unbelievable pain you could possibly imagine at the same time forever. Mm. Which is a really weird, fucked up concept. So... A lot of people, uh, when they, they think they want that, they mm-hmm. open it up, and then they regret their decision. <laughs> because this is way more extreme than they expected. Yeah. And the Cenobites, like, they're immortal. They don't die. Yeah. I mean, obviously not, because their injuries would kill them. But yeah. uh, in the first movie, they're constantly, like... <laughs> like, they're, like yeah. they're, they're clearly experiencing something. Yeah. Uh, they kind of left that... Let that go in the sequel. It, it, it just it just became like an unnecessary thing. But yeah, the idea is that all of like Pinhead's pins, he's feeling that. Yeah, that, that hurts him. But he's did. But he's into it. Like, yeah, that's like, what he said. Like, yeah. from Beyond the Grave. Yeah. It's like yeah, it's like sensory overload. And uh, I mean, Clive Barker is really big on the notion of uh, like like that Walt Whitman idea that the body and spirituality mm. are kind of connected. Uh-huh. Uh, and you know, he sings the body electric. And so there's like an almost, um, spiritual transcendent, yeah. uh, quality to physical sensation and mm. like, and fluids. So like blood and spit and other fluids yeah. play a big part in Clive Barker's stories. Uh, it's worth remembering that Clive Barker is a queer author. He was mm. actually for many, I don't know if this is still true for many years. He was the best selling openly queer author. I don't know if that's true uh, anymore, but he used oh, to okay. be. Uh, and, uh, Could, couldn't, re- can't refute yeah. that, but there, yeah. there's, there's a lot of queerness in a lot of his stories. There's a oh, lot yeah. of, uh, queer sexuality, in a lot of his stories. Uh, and boy, is that a lot of that in Hellraiser. Um, Hellraiser, the original film, weirdly enough, the Cenobites are a subplot. Yeah, it's... It's not really about them. They're just what gets the story going. And the idea is it's actually about this monster of a human named Frank. He's a terrible person. Mm. Uh, He uh, is sleeping with his brother's wife, and they're in this, like, really... the submissive dominant very very violent he's, he's very sexual rough relationship. yeah a lot, a lot of yeah. roughness um he is looking for the ultimate experience he opens the puzzle box he disappears uh the woman marries she's got a stepdaughter uh the husband is totally clueless about everything that's happened and then husband one... played by andrew robinson from yeah. star trek yeah and, he played and, garrick and dirty, and dirty harry as well yeah, he was the bad he was the bad guy in the original dirty Harry. great actor um they move back into their old house, and in the attic is where Frank did that. It's where he died. Yeah. And when they're just moving in and, like, you know, just doing regular, yeah, just Larry. moving in stuff, uh, uh, and, and, Andrew Robinson, Robinson cuts himself pretty yeah, bad. He, he gouges his hand on a screw and bleeds on the floor yeah. where Frank died. And there's uh, the blood seeps into the floorboards after they leave. Uh-huh. Uh, and there's a, a 
wonderfully oh. disgusting special effects sequence. Like one, one, of, one of the goriest best you'll see in any horror movie. Horror movies uh, are some horror movies have good visual effects. Some mm-hmm. horror movies have bad visual effects. I would argue that the scene where Frank reconstitutes himself into like a, a meaty skeleton <laughs> from a drop of blood mm-hmm. is one of the great visual effects in all of horror cinema. I put yeah. it right up there with Christine rebuilding itself. Yeah. And they're very yeah. similar in a lot of ways. But like those are just two of the... We know how they're done. They look amazing. <laughs> it's it's like the some of the goopiest, grossest oh, stuff. So grotesque. And uh, but he doesn't come back all the way. He, no, he, he's he's like he, he needs more juice. Like he can't stand up, and he doesn't yeah. have any like skin, and most of his organs are gone. Yeah. So uh, uh, Julia, played by uh, Claire Higgins, yeah, uh, finds him, and he says, "Hey, it's like this like shambling corpse. It's me, it's Frank." <laughs> She's like, "Holy shit! Hey, remember when we fucked?" Yes. Yes, that was actually quite good for me. <laughs> Feed me men and we can fuck again. It's all about lust. It's, yeah. all, it's all about Julia's Julia's lust yeah. and Frank's uh, thirst. Yeah. It, it is about uh, uh, hedonism. It's about desire. It is about, and it gets basically, look, it's about, it's about opening Pandora's box. It's about mm-hmm. the desire to do it. So she brings men for him to fuck and then it all goes really, really badly and it ends up uh, culminating when her daughter, Christy, uh, finds the puzzle box it's and a, basically it's, is it's able to... Kirsty. Oh, sorry, it is yeah. Kirsty. <laughs> Kirsty, thank yeah. you, uh, finds the puzzle box and brings the Cenobites back in because basically Frank escaped. Um, well, she she finds Frank and uh-huh. is freaked out because he still has no skin at that point. Yeah, he's wearing a suit but has no skin. It's really that's, bizarre. That's looking. a great image. And uh, and it's and the, the blood seeping through it. Yeah, but it's still yeah. kind of classy. <laughs> uh, but she gets the box, doesn't yeah. know what it is, opens it up, summons the Cenobites. She's yeah. like, "Okay, we're gonna take you and torture you, Kirsty." Yeah. And she's like, "I didn't even know what happens." I'm like, "We don't give a shit. No. <laughs> you opened it. Like, <laughs> that's that's what you do when you open Pandora's it, box. It is a means to summon us." And. Yeah. Uh, she says, I'll, "I'll if I lead you to somebody who escaped you, nobody escapes us. Somebody did. <laughs> let me go. Yeah. So, okay, fine. We'll yeah. let you go. A great fucking movie. We we obviously we skimmed it. I would argue that Hell that uh, Hellbound Hellraiser two isn't just a great horror movie. I would argue that as much as the original Hellraiser is great, Hellbound is better. And a big it's... part of it is because they managed to make the Cenobites the focus this time, mm. but they actually." It, it really, really works. It's a actual well, story that well, really expands on the mythology hmm. and gives you everything you're interested in. It gives it, we take the most incredible visit to hell. Yeah, we the, of any a, a movie. Lot of, a lot of the movie takes place in like the hell realm. Yeah. And to me, that's just what hell looks like. It's like uh, uh, when it's a big you, stone labyrinth. Yeah. Essentially, it, it's like uh, when you when I don't know if this is still the the uh, the default mode, but when Blade Runner came out, even though it wasn't a hit movie. Uh, that became everyone's default idea of what the future would be like unless mm. we go full Mad Max and everything's a desert. Yeah. Like, it's either Mad Max or Blade Runner. That's our future. Those just images of what mm. things were like took hold. For me, Hellbound, that's what I assume Hell would look like. Yeah. That's yeah. just, it's, it's it's perfect. It's incredibly visually realized. It's absolutely frightening. Um, it is about this evil doctor who is trying to unlock the puzzle mm. box and... Everyone gets sucked into hell. Gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's, really it's terrifying. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah that, the first movie is about lust. Uh, the second movie kind of expands that into yeah. just a very general obsession. The idea yeah. that the, the things you're fixated on yeah. are the things that you will be 
pun- like rewarded with, but also punished by simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, there is no notion at all in Clive Barker's uh, vision uh-huh. of uh, hell being a punitive measure. Yeah. It's not about sin. It's, there's yeah. there's not sort of a Christian mythology. It has yeah, that's, its own, that's irrelevant. Yeah, it has yeah. its own own mythology to it. Um, yeah, and, and in the first movie, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Pinhead even says, we're, we're demons to some, but angels to others. Yeah. Uh, I, I appreciate that it kind of goes into the mind. So like the mind and the body are both capable of uh, producing mm. this kind of torture. Yeah. And Dr. Chenard, the main character, oh, uh, play, who's played by an actor named Kenneth Cranham. Amazing uh, villain. I've seen these movies a lot, so I know a yeah. lot about them. The first two uh, are so fucking good. Yeah. Hell, Hellbound Hellraiser 2 is one of the great slashers of the age. Oh, it's not yeah. even a slasher. It's just no, one of the great not. horror movies of the age. No, they, they get lumped uh, in because they have like this rather obvious villain. But no, I would say only... I would argue oh, maybe almost only the new one actually qualifies as a slash. Well, yeah. that's not true. Hellworld. Hellworld's oh, kind Hellworld of a slash. is a straight kind up slash. Slasher. So like two of them are slashers. Um, Most of them are not. Yeah. Uh, the new one's more like 13 ghosts, but we'll get to we'll that. We'll talk about um, that. Uh, but yeah, uh, in that movie, uh, it turns out obsession sort of outstrips lust in a, a way because uh, Dr. Chenard becomes a Cenobite over mm-hmm. the course of the movie. It's pretty wild. Yeah, it's so, uh, so great. And to think, <laughs> I hesitated. I hesitated. Oh, so the second <laughs> one turns super, into this weird fucking thing. So the second one's super classy mm. and surreal and pretty and gross and it's everything I kind of want. The third one is stupid but fun. The, the third one, well, the third one is an American production. Yeah, they, the, the first two were British. The third mm. one they just gave to an American studio. They yeah. gave it a lot of money. Yeah, it's, for, it's, for a, a slasher movie. Yeah, it's not. It's 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 not a cheap looking and movie, but it's about Jadzia Dax from Deep Space Nine. It's Terry Farrell. Uh, she's an investigative reporter, and she's investigating some mysterious deaths. And it turned out that the puzzle box and the soul of Pinhead have been trapped inside this really ugly looking statue. Not. Mm attractively ugly like in an interesting way but in the production department mm. kind of let us down a smidge well, kind of way at the end of Hellraiser 2 yeah uh, okay uh, briefly there's a bloody mattress that leads into hell well, <laughs> yeah basically yeah. Uh, yeah. It, at, at the end of the movie this statue rises up out of the mattress uh-huh. and it's it's alive it's like covered with all these living images and yeah. uh, and we get and Pinhead is on there along with all of the other monsters and yeah. some other things that weren't even in the movie, and uh, and that's the last shot of the movie mm. is this statue. It's kind of interesting when it's enigmatic, but when you actually mm. boil it right down to it, it turns out Pinhead is in there and he wants you to feed him mm. people so that he can break out and bring out hell on earth in a very comic book supervillain kind yeah, of way, like in a way that just, has nothing to do with anything we've been talking about for two films. He just wants to kill people, like it's. Yeah. There, there's like some lip service given to you know uh, ah you enjoyed it it's all it's only flesh there's no good or evil there's only flesh yeah, it's a line of dialogue from but the they third clearly one. wanted to turn it into mm-hmm. a very different thing and it culminates in a very silly thing where Pinhead not only breaks out but he starts creating new Cenobites yep. out of things that were trendy in the early 90s so there's a compact disc Cenobite yeah, with com- compact discs coming the, out of the his compact head compact disc Cenobite is pretty ridiculous yeah there's it's not a, even a good looking Cenobite a, a cameraman too. has like a camera shoved into like his eye socket. Yeah, um, which at least at least is pretty good makeup on that one. There's yeah. one guy that uh, Pinhead just sort of wrapped him in barbed wire. It looks pretty Cenobite-ish. Yeah, that was pretty good. But it turns out he was a bartender in life. So he carries around a cocktail shaker and throws <laughs> cocktail shakers at cops. 
And it turns out the cocktail <laughs> shakers are full of gasoline, and he I also for- breathes fire. It's I the, forgot that one. It's the stupidest I shit. Forgot. But it's fun. It's fun to watch. It's just very, very stupid. Yeah, it's, it's like yeah. nothing to do with the first two. The fourth one The fourth one is called Hellraiser Bloodline. Bloodline, yeah. Bloodline, the singular? Bloodline, singular. Okay. And this one, you gotta give it credit. It's it, ambitious. It, it tried to reconcile a third movie. Yeah, it tried with, to incorporate it. With relative into, success, I'd yeah. say. It, it's actually a triptych. So it opens when the puzzle box was created by Adam Scott. No, it wasn't created by Adam Scott. He was there, he was there though. It was created by a, a, a puzzle maker. His name yeah. was Le Marchand. Uh, he's played yeah. by an actor named Bruce Ramsey. I thought he, I thought and, he was and, helped by Adam And he was Scott. hired by this Marquis de Sade-like French nobleman uh-huh. to say, hey, we, we, need your, we need your magical puzzle box because we have a party going on. Yes, we're not going <laughs> to tell you what it is. <laughs> and Adam Scott is there. And yeah. Adam Scott's like there brooding in the corner. I'm oh, sure I'll help him. Yeah. Back and when Adam Scott was being hired as, this like one of his first movies, right? Uh, one of his earlier films. Yeah, yeah. and it was basically it was the him, sa- as the, him as the pretty boy. The, the same year as a Star Trek First contact yeah. where he got to say, "Sir, it's the Enterprise." <laughs> that, that was his line. Nice. Uh, um, so anyway, uh, so it's about the creation of the puzzle box, and that bit's really good. And then we cut to the present day where they follow up the events of Hell of Hellraiser three a little bit mm. in a very respectable Hellraisery kind of way. And then it culminates like another hundred years in the future, where uh, the the descendant of the creator of the box is actually trying to put an end to its horrifying legacy. Mm. On a space station. Yeah. And normally when horror franchises go to space, with a few exceptions, it's usually just a pretty lousy gimmick. It's, yeah. yeah. It, it, like Jason X was kind of fun, but like it's pretty it's, silly. It's clearly like, yeah. clearly they're desperate at that point. Yeah. There's no, no ideas. But in here, well, there's clearly an element of that because they didn't have to go that hard. Um, it's actually kind of cool because it establishes Hellraiser as something that is that story it mm. will it's been going for forever and it will yeah. go on that it started long. centuries in the past yeah. it will end centuries in the future there's something and... there's something about how immortal hellraiser is and i like that movie the movie's not bad actually i think it's pretty good uh and it there's something it does really really nicely which is sort of appreciate hellraiser as as this immortal story mm. and i think it cements that and i actually think it's pretty good uh, it it's better than it get, got credit for. It was it was yeah. tanked at the time. For me, it's one of the it's really one of the best Hellraisers. Raisers. Although, as you'll see, that doesn't help much. Uh, the next Hellraiser was the first straight to video one. It was the directorial debut of Scott Derrickson, who went mm. on to direct Doctor Strange and Sinister and The Black Phone. Mm, that's right. Yeah, very good filmmaker uh, overall. Uh, not this one. <laughs> no, I mean it's competent, but it's, it's not very interesting. Well, it's, it's about a. It's a, set up a, a. It's about a corrupt cop investigating yeah. a serial killer. It's played by Craig Sheffer when he was yeah. a thing. Uh, Craig Sheffer, who was also a Nightbreed, so bringing it back around to oh, Hellraiser, uh, and uh, he's he's a corrupt cop and he's investigating like child abductions and serial killings, and somehow the Hellraiser box and Cenobites are involved, but it's very clearly, and most of the straight to video Hellraisers are in this boat. Very clearly, not a Hellraiser story. It's a standalone kind of supernatural thriller yeah, they, where they incorporated the Hellraiser uh, brand in mm-hmm. order to keep the brand alive. Yeah, it, it felt uh, five, six, seven, and eight. Yeah, I guess five, six, seven all follow the same yeah. sort of pattern where the main character is like a, a corrupt or devious or uh, yeah. just uh, morally questionable person, exactly there. in some sort of way. They run afoul of some sort of uh, magical underground. Mm-hmm. And come into possession of the box, they mm-hmm. open it, and then they're stalked by mysterious Cenobites throughout the movie that only appear sporadically. Yeah. Uh, and and they're still kind of horrible. And you know right from the jump what's going yeah. on. It's yeah. 
There's going to be a there, twist. There, there, there's a twist. I'm going to tell you what the twist is uh-huh. for three movies because they use the same twist three times in a row. Yeah. Uh, and then a couple other times, just they kind of use it. Yeah. Uh, they die at the beginning. They're dead. Yeah. And them seeing Cenobites is like a, a Jacob's Ladder scenario mm-hmm. where they're sort of ex- kind of lowering themselves into hell. And at the very end, Pinhead arrives. Doug Bradley's back. Yeah. And he says, yes, you've been in hell this whole time. We've been tormenting you to sort of teach you a lesson. This is actually a much, uh, much more punitive Christian version of hell. Yeah. And uh, the, the mythology is gone. All of the sex is gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, aren't you aren't you scared? Are you entertained? Yeah. And the audience says no. And then they put in the <laughs> next movie. And gosh darn it, they were fooled again. I, uh, I, I watched a video from, I think it was Diamanda Hagen, mm. uh, who was talking about how if you watch the Candyman movies, mm. because Candyman is kind of a living story, yeah. some of the Candyman movies are about different Candymen. Okay. Like it's the same concept, but the story is so different in those versions that this is like the local New Orleans version of Candyman. This is All the right. Chicago version of Candyman. I can buy so, that. So for me, when I watch the Hellraiser straight to video movies, most of them are not very well made. Inferno's quite competent, but it's not great. Um it feels like I'm watching a different version of Hellraiser. Yeah. This is the Christian version of Hellraiser. It's not <laughs> it's not very Christian. It's not like proselytizing, but it's clearly based on more Christian ideas and Catholic mm. ideas of they're, what Hellraiser. Morality fables. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think. I think the next one's Hellraiser Hell, Debtor. Hellseekers. Hellseekers. Oh, yeah. Hellseekers don't where Kirsty comes back. She dies in the first scene. Yeah. They <laughs> got up. Yeah, uh, Ashley Lawrence came yeah. back for that one. You know, it's She's you yeah. know, been associated with the part, so she's yeah. very fond of Hellraiser. It was cool of her to come back, but she dies but, in the first scene, and then it follows her, her widow, or her widower. Yeah. And he's, he's like, being investigated by the cops, and it turns he's, out he's, he's a piece of shit. He's not a, yeah, not him so much. It's so fucking, it's exactly the same fucking movie, except he's not a cop. It's exactly the same fucking oh, and, movie, except actually Lawrence. And Kirstie sells him out at the end. Yeah. Like, that's the twist. Yeah, which is uh, okay, but it's, and actually Lawrence is fine, but it's it's mm-hmm. a waste of time. Uh, then, Deader. then it was Deader. Deader is actually probably the best of the straight-to-video movies because it actually mm. is the one that if there was no Hellraiser in it, it'd probably be an okay film. Mm. And it stars Carrie Wurr as an investigative reporter investigating a mysterious cult yeah. of people who are trying to cheat death. And there's a really great scene where she's like stabbed with a knife oh, in a she, bathroom. She no, she wakes up. Yeah, and there's a a big knife sticking out of her back, so big like yeah. the point is sticking out of her chest. Yeah, and she's alive and doesn't feel any pain. Yeah, so she's and, like a walking corpse, and, and the, she's just trying to get the knife out. And oh, it's horrifying! It's horrifying, and yeah. the scene is just sort of takes a practical look at what what you would have to go through yeah. in that scenario. She tries to extract the knife, but she can't reach it. So yeah. there's a long bit yeah. devoted to her getting the knife out of her back it's it's actually it's it's not bad hmm. um the next one's hell world and um hell world takes the like the scream approach like a little it's a meta well, approach I, I wish it was that meta but it's basically um well, it, it takes, takes place, place in the real world yeah where uh, hellraiser is a movie franchise and also a, a multiplayer online game a la warcraft and and at this point uh hellraiser did expand into expanded universe stuff there sure. were there were comics um yep there was a Nightbreed uh, crossover in the comics. There was a Night, Nightbreed yeah. crossover. There, yeah. I think there was a Hellraiser game. I know there was a couple. Well, Clive, Clive Barker works on a couple of games. Yeah. I don't know if there was an, actually a Hellraiser one. But in any case, the idea is there's this big MMORPG and a bunch of gamers beat this puzzle in the game and are invited to the coolest party ever. Unfortunately, it's right where they live. The Hellraiser and party. The Hellra- and they go to this Hellraiser party. Henry Cavill is there, by the way. 
That's before right. anyone knew who he was. And, and their big get was Lance Henriksen. Yeah, Lance Henriksen is the guy who, like, I think he kind of, like, I guess he invented the game or something like that. And he's like, welcome to my party. And he's got that great Lance Henriksen voice. And then they're, every one of them is, like, sort of split off in the party and they're killed one by one by Cenobites. And there's a big twist. It's not exactly the same twist until it is the same yeah, twist well, at the end. That movie is awful. The whole, <laughs> whole world so is bad. bad. It's not just bad. It's like embar- It's quite embarrassing. And then from Hell Hell World, we went to Hellraiser Revel. Then we went to Revelations. Yeah. Hellraiser Revelations was so fucking cheap. I think they literally shot it over a weekend. But and it's also the one where uh, we didn't really mention him. Doug Bradley, who played the original Pinhead, that's the one where he didn't come back. Yeah. When you lose Doug Bradley, and he was willing to put up with so much shit. Mm. And those, like, so many inferior scripts. When you can't get Doug Bradley back, you're in trouble. Well, and there was something going on where, uh, like, somebody made a proof of concept without Doug Bradley. They put somebody else in in the makeup. And uh, It was a whole thing. Yeah, and Doug Bradley got wind of that, and he was, like, a little hurt that he wasn't asked to do that. And they wanted him to, like, sign an NDA and shit. Like, it was basically, they just treated Doug Bradley real bad, and that's not So he said, no, I'm not going to do it. They made it without him, and... It's, it's an inferior awkward. pinhead. The guy, if you don't remember who the guy's name was, he's not great. It's, it's not his fault. That's a big shoes to fill. They yeah. tried to, with Revelations, they tried to remake the original. Like, it's a lot of the same story beats as the original. It's not in so that much a somebody is, has no skin and they're trying, they're like yeah. luring people into the room it's, it, so he can grow his skin it, back. It, it, it's, it, what happens is there's uh, two families reunite on like the anniversary or something like that of when both of their like 20 something sons disappeared. Mm. And then one of them returns and says, we, we went to Mexico. We did something horrible. We opened the puzzle box Mm. and now they're coming for me. I escaped. Yeah. And then there's a whole bunch of like reveals. And what I, what I like about this movie, even though it's not a good movie is that it's at least trying to be more like the original Hellraiser. It's trying to evoke the same themes. It's trying to be more about temptation and lust. Very horny. Um, and I appreciate that it tried. So at least, even though it's not a good Hellraiser, it feels like a Hellraiser to me. Mm. The next one was Hellraiser Judgment. This one's frustrating because parts of it are actually kind of neat. The, the, fir- the first, like the opening bit is yeah. really cool because yeah. a big part of uh, Clive Barker's myth, uh, if you like go into the comics yeah. and the extended stuff, is that hell is actually really bureaucratic. Yeah. There's like all these different sects. Uh, the uh, yeah. if, if you look into it, uh, the Cenobites that we know from the movie belong to something called the Order of the Gash. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, there's like a hierarchy within hell and, you know, the, yeah. And if there's a hierarchy, surely there'd be people low on that totem pole. Clerks, yeah. essentially. Yeah. And judgment, <laughs> judgment starts with, like, a hell clerk. Yeah. And I like that. And the and the process by which they judge people is, like, super duper gross and weird. And, yeah. like, they, like, type out their sins and then they're eaten by well, people and then they, they, they puke t- it back they type out. out their sin, like, they put, like, a, a, a shunt into their vein and yeah. that, it, that feeds into the typewriter ribbon. Yeah. So that's... you're typing it out in their blood. Yeah. That's really cool. And, yeah, then somebody eats it and then pukes into a trough and, like... Yeah. Faceless, topless women smear the the vomit yeah. on themselves. It's, that yeah, feels very Clive Barkery. Yeah. That that bit is actually pretty cool. I'm gonna mm. let Judgment have that. The problem is that they, they don't just l- let that be. Mm. They also basically remake Inferno with like a corrupt cop yeah. investigating a serial killer, and I then just it, don't care about that stuff. And at then all. at the end, they decide, fuck it, we're introducing. And you know what? I'm just gonna say because who's gonna watch it? We're introducing angels now. Yeah. Right at the end, which is basically like, no, don't do that. Don't, don't, well, don't there's, do that. There's a, an in, there's a conceit in Judgment where, um, like, S&M isn't, yeah. 
isn't as alluring as it once was. So there aren't yeah. like seekers of extreme pleasure anymore. Yeah. So there's nobody opening the box. And the idea is the Cenobites are getting bored and trying to find something new. Okay. And that's what the, the interview was all about. We'll type out all your, what you've done, what you're into. Well, how, what, what would allure you like to, to be mm, tortured yeah. in, in hell? Like what, what do we have to, it's, it's like, <laughs> it, it's like market it's like, research yeah. for hell. Which I, is, I think that's a fun idea, but they didn't, Go with it far it, when The more bureaucratic it gets, the less Hellraiser it feels to me. But uh, it is interesting. And I, Judgment is not a complete watch. Um, and anyway, and then it kind of went fallow for a while. And then they talked about properly rebooting it with real money. Uh, and they ended up getting, as a director, David Breckner. David Breckner is an excellent horror director. And you should check out his work. He's done a few a few yeah. uh, interesting flags. Yeah, yeah. He did. Uh, what was that? Wasn't it with Hitchhikers? That's going to drive me nuts. Uh, the, no, not the hitchhikers, the uh, the, the, the hikers the hitchhikers. in the in the woods. Oh, it's um uh, not not uh, not yeah. apostle. Um, uh, oh my god, why it, are we it, so bad at this? It, Hold it, on, it had a pretty generic title. No, it did, and that's kind of thing. The ritual, the ritual, that the was ritual's it. pretty cool. It's about a bunch of hikers in the woods, and they stay the night at a cabin, and the cabin has this weird cult icon in mm. the in the attic, and it all goes really bad. Great monster effects in that one. Mm-hmm. That one's really cool. And he also did uh, the night house mm-hmm. from about two years. Ago with yeah. um, um, Rebecca Hall. Rebecca Hall. Rebecca Hall in, is in, amazing in, in that movie. In, in, interesting conceit in that yeah. movie. I like the way it ended. Yeah. Um, Some Hellraisery things in that movie actually as well, mm. with like weird obsessions and yeah, leading to, leading down a path to, it's, to it's, supernatural it's, ruin. It's, it's, yeah, it's yeah. like a, it's a, essentially a haunting movie. You can yeah. tell from the poster. It, it's it's a decent movie made exceptionally good by mm. Rebecca Hall's performance. Yeah. Uh, but he's always shown a lot of promise, and here he's got the keys to Hellraiser, and it's pretty much a hard reboot. There's really nothing that's spe- aside from the existence of the box and the Cenobites. There's really nothing D- that's spe- and different box and different Cenobites, different yeah. box, different Cenobites, different rules. So this feels like even you might be able to argue that like it's kind of in line with maybe the first one or something. Like, yeah, it doesn't if, preclude it if, if you want to squint, but it's 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 uh, clearly a reboot to yeah. me. Um, and the idea is very very simple. The box has been found again. Uh, at, towards the beginning of the movie, uh, a, a recovering addict uh, in a moment of desperation breaks into a place and steals it with her boyfriend. Mm. And uh, while after she's kicked out of her house uh, by her brother, uh, she falls off the wagon, starts fucking around with the box, opens the box. And it turns out the rules are different this time. It's not just yeah. you open the box and the Cenobites arrive. Mm. You open the box. The box cuts you. A little blade pops out of the box. Yes, yeah, it cuts you, and that creates like a blood sacrifice kind of thing. And then the hell, ra- and then the, the the Cenobites come, and they take you or someone, or and someone you have a choice. Else, yeah. You can choose. You don't necessarily know what you're doing, but you can choose someone else. And then that's not the end of it. That's just the first phase of the box opening. Mm. And over yeah, the that- course of the film, our protagonist finds themselves. Messing around with the box more on purpose or by accident and getting suckered into more and more decisions and, and, that yeah, lead them the, to hell. And the box changes shape with each configuration. Each yeah. con- and uh, it, it's it reminded me a lot of Friday the 13th, the series. Mm-hmm. The idea that uh, Friday the 13th, the series, nothing to do with Jason Voorhees, was a TV yeah. series from the late 80s. Uh, anthology-ish. It was mm-hmm. about uh, cursed objects from a haunted antique store that had... Uh, Profligated throughout the world. Yeah, some, and, some, there uh, was basically someone. The person who owned this haunted antique store mm. died, and they liquidated it. 
And a lot of these haunted antiques were just sold off or shipped elsewhere. And then people inherit the store from their uncle or whatever. And now they realize, oh God, all the haunted antiques are gone and they have to get them back. Yeah. And every one every of episode's the, a new haunted antique. Every one of the haunted antiques uh, works the same. It's actually not very <laughs> creative. No. Uh, it's a great it's, setup. They didn't do a lot with the, it. The antiques, no matter what they are, uh, there's uh, here's a, mm. a, an old camera. Here's mm. a wicker wheelchair. Here's a coffin. A you know, statue like, of Cupid. Yeah. All, all yeah. these different things. Um they can these these things can grant you a wish, mm-hmm. but they demand a blood sacrifice. You have, Pretty much, you that's kill someone, them, yeah. you get a portion of your wish, and the more yeah. people you kill, the stronger the wish gets. And of course, by the end, they're always hoisted by their own petards, and they're always thematically and, linked. And so, like the cupid regular, will get make someone fall in love with you, but yeah, yeah, it'll have to like shoot an arrow into their yeah, eye or some uh, bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the regular, the only regular characters would appear near the end of the episode and say, "Hey, we'll we'll take that back now." Yeah. Uh, that's the deal with the Hellraiser puzzle box now. Yeah. Uh, it's like, you solve this, it'll stab somebody, uh, it'll take them away, but if you do it enough, you get a wish. Mm-hmm. That's that's at the end of this. And you get like yeah. one of five wishes. That's that's the new yeah. rules. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, the, the main character, uh, not terribly interesting. No, none of, and we, frankly, none of the characters are terribly Well, interesting. because here's the thing. The original Hellraiser was about adults. Yeah. This is about people who had reached a certain point in their... Uh, sexual exploration that they were really willing to take that next step the step into hell and uh they were old enough to have regrets and to be willing to make like huge hmm. decisions based off of i never had this yeah like this is important this is uh the new hell everyone's having a midlife crisis in a horror realm hell hell world and this one are Hmm. about young people yes who are being essentially stalked and killed by interesting monsters uh the new cenobites look really cool i like them uh, they they uh, they whoever... jettisoned the they jettisoned the leather. Yeah, it, well, it's yeah. They they took the sex out, and we'll get to that in a second. Yeah, I have a theory about the, that. The uh, the characters now they, they're not wearing any clothes, and mm. they're just mutilated from head to toe. Their skin mm. is like separated from their mm. bodies. Uh, pin a new version of Pinhead is back, played by an actress named uh, Jamie Clayton mm, from uh, Sensate, and she's good. I like she, her take on. She's color. good. I, I mean, like her take on Pinhead. Not not a, like a, a rich, interesting character, but scary. No, uh, yeah, she's the. It's, she's got a she's got a different vibe. Mm. She's got a more. Um, I mean, she really takes the priest thing to heart. Yeah. I think is the the, the way that like, she's yeah. playing it. Whereas, uh, uh, I feel like uh, Doug Bradley had more of a Shakespearean. Brian Blessed villain kind of thing going, like very loud, yeah, very, like very spe- like yeah. a lot of speeches. We yeah, have like eternity to no, your flesh. She's just like she's just got the confidence of knowing that her religion is right. Yeah, and there's something really kind of creepy about that. And it's it's so even though she doesn't have as as juicy a part to work with as Doug Bradley sometimes did, mm. she makes it her own. And that's the thing where. You know what? That's an iconic character. Other people tried to play Pinhead and it never really worked. Yeah, she she doesn't. Yeah. Just great. Will we have another good pin? Yes. Mm-hmm. She's great. I would like to see more of her, please. And, uh, yeah. Her, and she also matches a little bit more of the description from the original novella back in mm. 86. Yeah. Uh, where the, the character was actually a lot more like straight up androgynous, yeah. uh, but described as like being more female. So yeah. got a woman to play the part. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, too much of the movie, however, is her and all the other Cenobites kind of stalking around a mansion. The movie's just over two hours. It's like two hours and two minutes. It, it doesn't need to be that This long. needs to be 90. It, it's, here's <laughs> there's, there's too much of it. Yeah. There's too much time with these young characters. There's too much time figuring out what the rules are. And there's yeah. no sex. Here, here's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give this movie its laurels. Because I actually right. think it's mostly a good movie. 
Um, I, I like it too. I, yeah, yeah. I, I, we're going to talk about what keeps it from greatness and what makes it a little different and maybe we don't always like. But I want to focus for a minute on the things that we try. First off, it looks great. It's really, really good, classy. It looks like Hellraiser. It the, feels the, like Hellraiser. The monster design. The, the monster design, design looks good. The, the cinematography yeah. is pretty solid. Like, it's just a good looking movie. The sound design is really, really good. The violence is really, really gross. Yeah. It's all actually, of the, like, proper all, violence. All of the torture and the flayings, all of those things, they're very Hellraiser-y. They're very effective. They're very visceral. That functions great. All of that stuff works. There's a few changes to the mythos that I kind of like. I kind of like that there's actually kind of lore to the different configurations and that they kind of make sense by the end of the movie and you realize mm. this means something in a way that that actually tracks. Mm. Like, I like that. That's smart. But the thing that they did, and I think this is, they did two big changes here. Mm. And one of them goes to your comment, but I'm going to start with mine because I think it's shorter. <laughs> um, they added this element to the puzzle box where it is a process of opening it multiple times and every time you do, someone dies. Yeah. Now, on a screenplay, on, you're writing a horror screenplay. No, this makes sense because keep it, chugging along, it, keep, it, yeah. it keeps it chugging along. It keeps the body count high, which not mm. every Hellraiser has that. So it makes, but it makes it feel more like a slasher movie where every once mm. in a while a character and we don't get to know most of them very well. And that sucks. There's way too many underwritten characters in this. Uh, Odessa Azion, I don't know if that's how you pronounce that, is the protagonist. She's pretty good, but most of the other characters get very little character yeah, work in yeah. there. They get like one note, sometimes not even that. She has a well, roommate that is just there. <laughs> she's just there around, and then yeah. she something bad happens and then she's not and that's all I know of that character I feel bad for that actor I don't know if their scenes got cut or what but man that character has just no characterization to them whatsoever and that sucks and that and that undermines the scary stuff that happens to them so I think this attempt to make it more about plot more about uncovering the secrets of the box and open the box over and over and over again it just makes the film padded more it feels like it's padded <laughs> yeah. with death there, there which were is okay there were but five like, phases maybe there yeah. should have been only three maybe, yeah, kind of thing. like there, it's padded it's it's uh it's longer than it needs to be and the reason why it's long is because they added plot yeah not because they added myth. character yeah. myth or even experience and i think that's what you're talking about with the removal of sex is mm. that there's a certain visceral quality to the early Hellraiser movies that this doesn't quite have mm -hmm. because this is about the stuff that happens and not how it makes people feel. Mm -hmm. Hellraiser is about passion and vice well, and lust the, and the pain. Villains of you know? the, hell, the villains of the first two Hellraiser movies mm -hmm. are human characters. That's very true. Uh, the, 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 the Cenobites are neutral. The Cenobites just do what they do. Yeah. That, that's what makes them so appealing. Yeah. And that's kind of the approach they did here the, as well. They're like the shark but, yeah. in Jaws if they were into kink. It's not the shark's <laughs> fault. The villain in Jaws is the mayor. The shark yeah. is just a shark. Mm. shark is just doing what sharks do. You can only be so mad at it. Yeah, like, you got to stop it, but it's, it's not yeah, the villain. But that's why when you get to Hellraiser 3, it's like, oh, no, no, he's the villain now. No, yeah. do he doesn't that. have ambition. That's, that's what made it different, yeah, was that it wasn't that. He, he He's waiting at the end of the path you're traveling on. Yes, yeah. you'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> he, can <laughs> wait he, all, he can wait for a century if yeah, he's got to. Like, he's mm -hmm. good. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so yeah, th so they are these sort of independent entities, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, f I feel like they they're more like slasher monsters, and yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I mentioned uh, Thirteen Ghosts. There's yeah. a, a that is the remake of Thirteen Ghosts, yeah. where Which is they've, fun. they've trapped I like that movie. Thirteen really cool looking monsters yeah. in boxes. They're invisible unless you wear these special goggles. Yeah, which is a reference to the William Castle movie. Yeah. Much better movie. Much better movie. But I do like the remake. I think it's a fun flick. It's it's uh, a, it's uh, as for considering how ultra violent it is, it's got good slumber party vibes. I, I suppose so. It's, it's just it's a got fun got a, a spook house of a movie. Fun cast, some you know? fun monsters, but it's yeah. it's. If you want to get high and watch a horror movie, yeah. you could do a lot worse. If if you were really into that Dark Castle films aesthetic, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, which 13 Ghosts was, Dark mm-hmm. Castle films, um, sure, go for it. Knock yourself out. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. Watch the original instead. Make sure you have the uh, yeah. the red and blue gels so you can yeah. look through the cellophane. No, the, the original is much more, it's much more of a kind-hearted movie in a lot of ways. Mm. It's a little bit more cuter and more fanciful. It's, it's, but it's, it's really good. fun. Yeah. It's yeah. really fun. I love that movie. So much. If, if you the believe original. in if you believe in ghosts, look through the red filter. If you don't believe in ghosts, look through the blue filter, and you won't so see great. the ghost. It's so great. Anyway, uh, but, but yeah, but yeah, th- this is a lot of this new Hellraiser movie is devoted to people trapped in a mansion. Yeah. There's these weird sort of complicated box uh, mm-hmm. locking mechanisms wired mm-hmm. into the castle, so people can flip switches and trap people. Which I feel like it's a reference to Bloodline. Uh, maybe like the building itself yeah. was a box that that was yeah. part of bloodline um yeah. uh so uh, unfortunately uh, as cool as the monsters are just walk mm. watching them sort of stalk down hallways after people it's like okay it, it's you, kind of same you, you don't have bit, an idea here do yeah. you and yeah and what, what what it has going for it is the monsters are really scary the mystery mm. is really effective uh one of the characters uh has this device in their chest which is like <sighs> pulling on nerve ends, which is really kind of cool. That's pretty cool. I like um, that. That's towards the end, but that's neat. And, and I liked the way it, like, at the very, very end, I liked sort of, like, the... the there's a, the, there's the, a button. The, yeah, a little button at the end was really yeah. cool. But, yeah, it's it's sexless in a way that's kind of mm. weird, and I think it's because it's... Because it's about... The original was about sexual temptation, mm. and this new one is about a metaphor for addiction specifically to something else, specifically mm. to chemicals. Um and, 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 re- and even then, it doesn't play it very hard. Not very yeah. well. No, I think I think the Evil Dead remake did a better job of bringing yeah, that around. Yeah, but like, and yes, because like here, it just we never really get that there's a character here who is has doesn't have a lot of control over their impulses mm-hmm. because that's what the original film was about: not being able to control your sexual impulses. Yeah. Here, okay, we're changing what you can't control your impulses for, but we need to feel it. In order for this to work, we need to understand that the the void in this character that they're trying to fill with something mm. is causing them to do bad things, and, and then it creates collateral damage. Yeah. And I don't think David Bruckner does a good enough job of highlighting the reality, the real story that exists before the Cenobites show up. Yeah, that part yeah. feels kind of perfunctory. And it undoes everything. It does explain why the Cenobites aren't wearing S&M gear anymore because it's more about the flesh than it mm. is about kink. Yeah, they, they, Fine. They, the word they use is sensation. Uh, yeah. they, they want extreme sensation. And yeah. uh, when you remove the sex from it, when it's not an S&M thing, yeah. uh, when it's not about uh, being hurt as a form of sexual arousal, sexual mm-hmm. pleasure, the Cenobites now turn into essentially horror movie psychopaths. Yeah. They just long for violence. They just like violence. That's yeah. kind of their only motivation. Yeah. And I mean, that's the, that's like every slasher movie villain. There's so, so much more I think you could have done with that in the realm of drug addiction, where it's mm. like, you're destroying yourself, mm. but you're enjoying it, aren't yeah, like you? Because that's what drugs are. Yeah, they make like, you feel good, but they have the You're going to get off on this in some way. Yeah, it feels yeah. like there's so much more 
Bruckner could have got out of that. Yeah. That it would have been a perfectly valid take, and it's still a perfectly valid take. I just think that because he doesn't highlight that and just makes it more about the kills, it ends up being a really good Hellraiser movie, but it's not the upper echelon. No. It's, it's... certainly in the top five, <laughs> but that's not it's, the it's... highest bar you could reach. I'll say this. It's better than all the straight-to-video movies. Yes. Uh which I, I guess technically this went to Hulu, so it's also arguably te- yes. arguably a TV movie. Yeah, but, um, yeah. This but it's, one, it's wide release. They put money behind it. It's yeah. a different vibe. Yeah. Uh, the first two are kind of unassailable. I love those yeah. first two movies a lot. The third one is <coughs> just trash. The fourth yeah. one is okay. It's a little I, little chaotic. I, but I, I place like it, it a little bit above this one because I think its ambitions yeah, are, yeah. are actually pretty good and they're better realized than you would expect from an. And there's Alex a lot Smithy of like, film. Weird, wild it's things in that, movie. Stuff in that movie. I, yeah. I admire that film because that movie, that movie tries something. And it's over in 80 minutes. <laughs> it's, yeah. like, it's like real short. It's, ep- it's the biggest horror epic ever and it's real short. Here it's padded, but you know what? It's the best Hellraiser movie we've had in over 25 years. Yeah. And and, I, and I'll I love, take it. <laughs> I love the hell, I love the Cenobites. I like Jamie Clayton a lot. Um, yeah. I hope she gets to come back and do it again. And there's this, definitely room to like expand enough, on this later. Because there's no yeah. reason to stop making Hellraiser movies. No, why not? Like, seriously, uh, this is good. Make yeah. another... This is a good starting point. You didn't hit so high that you can't improve it later. I guess that's a bonus. <laughs> Maybe that's not what you're aiming for, mm. but there you go. Um, so I like this. I don't love this, but it is so nice to help Hellraiser even remotely back on track. Yeah, <laughs> just something that's passable. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Let's talk about the other Disney horror movie that came out this week, and this one's actually on Disney+. Plus. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is called Werewolf by Night. It is an adaptation of a Marvel... Actually, a couple of Marvel superheroes, but the title one is a character who turns into a werewolf. Uh, werewolf yeah, Werewolf by Night was um, a 1970s Marvel character, yeah. and Werewolf by Night was just a werewolf. Pretty much. Uh, no, that was his no, whole thing. No twist to it. It's just he turn, yeah. turns into a wolfman on full yeah. moons. No... Mar- no Super Soldier Serums no. or Infinity Gems, just werewolf. No, in fact, uh, uh, Marvel actually had quite a few prominent horror comics in the 1970s in particular. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, this they... is when the, the heyday of uh, Tomb of Dracula, mm. Blade was coming out. Uh, we had... Hell, Hellstorm. Hellstorm. Or, um, uh, um, Son of Satan, it was called. At the, the time, 70s, it was just, yeah. at the time, it was literally called Son of Satan, and everyone was sort of fine with that. Uh, we had uh, Ghost Rider was becoming more popular mm. around that time. I think he might have been created in like, the 60s, but regardless, he was around. Marvel I had a whole. To look up Ghost Rider Marvel there. had a whole supernatural wing hmm. that was doing really well for them, and they brought this back in the '90s a bit. Uh, and it's, I, I read the '90s comics. That's when they yeah. uh, they called it Midnight Suns. That's yeah. what I asked. Uh, it was like their their sub imprint. Yeah, that was their horror and, and that's, stuff. Yeah, they, that, and that that was my introduction to Morbius the Living Vampire. Yeah. Uh, where they dressed him in like they dressed him like the crow essentially like yeah. it's like black straps across his outfit that was, like tattered clothes I they thought, should have just set that Morbius movie in the 90s and dressed him like that it would have been so much better I, I bought that first issue of Morbius and I bought it because you know what he's hot <laughs> I looked that at outfit, that and I'm like yeah. you know what I want that, that outfit that's hot yeah. I want I want to I kind of want. I don't know if I want the outfit. I want Morbius. Like that's hot. So, <laughs> and it it was all, it was more style than substance, but a lot of it always was. So I, I was very fond of. They had their own version of. Uh, it was essentially the X Files. Yeah. Called, oh yeah. It was called the Darkhold Redeemers. That and, was and it. We, we talked about the Darkhold um, with the last Doctor Strange movie. Yeah. Uh, they Marvel a, had their own Necronomicon, and yeah. Uh, yeah, and there was this trio of 
a cop. One was a psychic. One was like an ex was Mulder as an ex yeah. FBI agent, and one was like a fortune teller. Yeah, could like read runes and stuff. And, and they just they, investigated supernatural stuff. Well, they investigated specifically. Uh, somebody was ripping out pages of mm. like this demon book, the Darkhold, and mm. like mailing it to people, and it was like causing whoever read a page oh. like was affected by a different curse. So oh, you to, remember like, that way more vividly than I do. Okay, cool. I, I read that comic book. Yeah. I read it too. I just thought that that one's kind of a haze. Okay. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> Um, so yeah, Marvel's starting to get into that now. We got uh, they're they're gearing up to do another Blade movie with Mahershala Ali. That's kind of interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, here we go. This is a hour long black and white uh, monster story featuring werewolf by night and a few other monstery characters, in particular Elsa Bloodstone, mm-hmm. who is kind of the monster hunter. She's like yeah, a Van Helsing. She's, she's like a Van Helsing character. Um, and, um, and it's directed by Michael Giacchino, which is yeah. kind of neat. Michael Giacchino is the Academy Award winning composer who Most has of done Pixar stuff. He's done yeah. a lot of Pixar movies. He's, he's done, I, th- I think one or some, two of the Star, Star Trek, Wars, done Star Wars and Star Trek. Yep. Um, yep. Did he's an excellent pl- Planet of the Apes movies. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's done a lot of the bigger, he, like high profile special effects. He, he, bonanza did the, he did the Batman. And while That's I right. wasn't a huge fan of the Batman, I think his score is arguably the best part. He, he got so much out of two notes. Yeah, no, no. He yeah. he he knew hmm. Batman can carry Batman. He can do a sort of a minimalism to it, yeah, and it really nicely done there. Yeah. Seriously, I don't. I I'm way more critical of that movie than most people for for you know reasons I've articulated many times. Great score, great score, really I, great I, score. I cannot I cannot yeah. fault the Batman on score. No. Yeah, um, and it turns out not a bad filmmaker actually. I, this is his. Third uh, directorial effort. Mm-hmm. He did one called, uh, I think it was called Monster Challenge. Mm. Uh, was a short he made with Patton Oswalt. Mm. Uh, and, and it's yeah, it's a comedy short where Patton Oswalt, playing a version of himself, is uh, going to appear on a game show in Japan. Mm-hmm. And he's ill prepared for what he has to do on this game show. And they end up dressing him as a kaiju, and he has to fight another kaiju. <laughs> And he funny. gets really into the role. Like, and so there's all these funny. special okay. effects and Patton Oswalt is roaring. Oh, then check that out. That sounds cute. Um, then he did an episode of Short Treks. Yeah. Uh, Short Treks was the Please Don't Cancel CBS All Access show. <laughs> uh, Star Trek Voyage, or Star Trek Discovery, excuse me, uh, yeah. had ended and it was going to be a couple months before they released the next season. Yeah, they needed and they needed something, so, something to keep subscribers in. So they, they knew a lot of their subscribers were literally only there for only Star there Trek. Only there for Star Trek. Yeah. So, okay, once a month. <laughs> so before you know, right right before your subscription lapses, <laughs> we're going to put out something called Short Treks. So what they did, they just went back to the set with one or two actors. Uh-huh. They came up with some sort of script that they could do like in Very maybe quick. like yeah. six six to 15 minutes and just shot something like here's yeah. one where cadet Tilly is in the mess hall, but everybody's off the ship and she finds somebody hiding on the ship. And it's just the two of them. Uh, there was an episode where uh, Spock and, uh, and number one mm-hmm. were literally just trapped in a turbo lift. No, <laughs> they did that. Uh, they they did fell back that. on that old sitcom cliche. Yep. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Good for them. And, uh, and number one teaches Spock how to sing Gilbert and Sullivan, and he ends up laughing, and it's the stupidest thing. Oh my god, that sounds uh, so, They got that a little more ambitious uh, yeah. later on. One of the short tracks is about the guy who invented Tribbles. I heard about that one. That sounds kind of wrong, actually. Yeah, it was, it was um, oh, what's his name from Bob's Burgers? Bob from Bob's Burgers, and uh, Archer, oh. and Archer as well. Um, H. John Benjamin. H. John Benjamin yeah. appeared in that one. He was the guy who uh, discovered this life form, and he was the one who made them, like, 
easy he, made he, them he, reproduce quickly. He made the, one, he, the reason why they're they're a plot yeah. point. Yeah. And, and yeah. The, what was the what was the Michael Giacchino episode? The Michael Giacchino episode was an animated episode, oh. and it was about a kind of this anthropomorphic tardigrade. Like a space oh. tardigrade. You know what a tardigrade is. It's a microscopic life form in Star mm. Trek. Uh, in Discovery, they ran into one that was like six feet tall. Yeah. It's like just a giant tardigrade. And uh, this one is about a little tardigrade that's mm. looking after its eggs on a ship. And it runs afoul of like a little security robot. And as as they're sort of like chasing them each other through like the catacombs of the... And there's no dialogue. Yeah. They're chasing each other through like the crawl spaces and little cracks in the ship. We occasionally go into an area where there's actors and it's actually like classic Trek episodes or movies. Okay. So, so it's kind of weaving in and out of yeah, the stuff. Yeah. So kind That's of... Cute. And there's like time holes so we actually get to see like... Uh, and we eventually catch up with the events of Star Trek 3 where the Enterprise uh. crashes. Oh, weird. Uh, That's cute. Yeah, it's cute. That it's cute. cute, and and I th- I feel okay. like uh, Michael Giacchino really has a good eye for genre stuff. Yeah, uh, I, I, absolutely, he does because he scores enough of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think his last movie was Lightyear, so yeah, he knows spacey stuff, and he's a yeah. fan of that that kind of stuff. Uh, so here he is, uh, clearly a fan of uh, was it George Wagner who directed The Wolfman. Uh, oh, the original... The, the um, 1941 film, The I Wolfman. Honestly, I think it was directed by a guy named George Wagner. I'm going to look it up because that's not, not a well-known knowing. director, unfortunately. No, no, no. But uh, one of the most famous movies ever. Yeah, um, yeah The Wolfman starring Lon Chaney Jr. Mm-hmm. Uh, hold on here. I'm going to look that up so, right yeah, now. I, so, see if Whitney's right. Does Whitney win the schmodown? Uh, <laughs> it was George Wagner. George Wagner. All with right, two I got, Gs. I got it right. Okay. Um, yeah. One time. I don't embarrass myself. Um, <laughs> But uh, Michael Giacchino is trying to make this look like the Wolfman, including the old Universal mm. titles, like the uh, bra- bold brass music. Yeah, uh, black and white. It's, yeah, shot in black and white. There's even cue marks halfway through, which yeah, is about, cute, the time, about the time where a, a real change would come over. Yeah, cue well, mark is when you see like a little uh, little circle in the right-hand corner of the uh, yeah. screen, and that tells the person in the projection booth it's time to switch reels. Mm. Uh, most movies like kind of like don't, have that anymore because they're digital mm-hmm. and a lot of the older ones they just kind of hide that in the print when that comes into like home video yeah but they, occasionally they, occasionally in older films you will even see that in home video uh, yeah well yeah. when they first started uh duping 35 and 16 millimeter prints to vhs yeah they would just leave the version that they had so yeah, you would see the cue marks in like old uh old yeah. vhs or even on tv broadcasts so uh, people of a certain age are really familiar with Q marks. Uh, mm-hmm. Michael J. Aquino put one in fake. Yeah. It's trying to make it uh, look like a movie from 1941. Widescreen format wasn't introduced until 1953. That will is... always bother me. Yeah, uh, you, you, <laughs> you, only, you only did it half assed on that point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. like there's yeah. some film scratch, but he doesn't really go all the way with it. No. But uh, Gael Garcia Bernal mm-hmm. plays Werewolf by Night, uh, a guy named Jack Russell. Which is, I'm not they're sure based on they... comics. No, that's from the comics. Okay, uh, did, did they name him after the Terrier? Because, I think they yeah, did. They okay. just, they, they, there was a comic. But uh, he, he <laughs> They weren't been, always, they weren't always uh, future-proofing yeah. some of these things. He and a bunch of completely underwritten Monster Hunter characters mm-hmm. are called to a mansion owned by, uh, what's his name, Olympus Bloodstone? No, Ulysses Bloodstone. Ulysses Bloodstone. Bloodstone. The, original, the original Monster Hunting character in the Marvel Cinema, in the, sorry, in the Marvel Comics universe was named Ulysses Bloodstone, and he was this really handsome, like, shirtless guy. Long blonde hair, yeah. big stone in his bare chest. And his whole yeah. thing is he hunted monsters, and he had this big red gem in his rare chest. It looks like the red gem from The Secret of Nim. And... Um, yeah, and it gives him the power to hunt monsters. And at the beginning of the story, Ulysses Bloodstone has died. 
And all of these monster hunters are being called to his elaborate mansion full of monster hunting, you know, relics and uh, stuffed monsters on the walls. And uh, the idea is there's going to be a ceremony and whoever wins this sort of contest will be the next person who gets to carry the bloodstone. You get to, you're essentially Lord of the Monster Hunters. Yeah, you'll be the strongest, most powerful monster hunter, and you'll get all it. So, uh, Gal Garcia Bernal. No one knows he's a werewolf at the start, but we do, because that's called Werewolf by Night. Uh, and then there's uh, Elsa Bloodstone, uh, who is played by someone whose name I forgot. <laughs> and I'm going to look this up, because I just realized I forgot their name. Right. Uh, Elsa Bloodstone is Ulysses Bloodstone's daughter. She is the... Laura Donnelly is the character. Is the Laura actress. Donnelly. Uh, they uh they're they're on the outs they left the life but they don't want anyone else to get this magical gem mm. so they're here to make a play for it and the idea is this they're going to release a secret monster into a labyrinth that's not sadly not a minotaur no it would have been neat but it's a secret monster and i don't know if it's worth ruining it because it's a big reveal but it's a character you'd recognize they, in the they, comics if they, you know the comics they show it in the previews oh it's do pretty, they show yeah, it in the previews it's, it's pretty pretty wide okay fine recognized. then it's man thing it's man thing man thing had a movie in like 2005 yeah. directed by brett leonard yeah from the director uh, of the lawnmower man it was supposed to be theatrical there were a bunch of behind the scenes woes and it ended yeah, up going it, straight to the sci-fi channel eventually yeah but uh, but um, that yeah based it, it yeah. man thing is just a big swamp monster there's yeah. there's well, a little bit more to him than that but Basically, that's that's his vibe. That's what he looks uh, like. Yeah, through a combination of like uh, chemicals and magic, yeah. uh, a person fell into a bog and emerged as this big red-eyed lumbering swamp yeah. monster. And it is said that whoever knows fear hmm. burns at the touch of the man thing. So if the man thing touches you, and you're afraid of the and, man and thing, then you will be destroyed. Hmm. Um, man thing was created. Uh, by the roommate of the guy who created Swamp Thing. And the two, the two characters, Man-Thing and Swamp-Thing, debuted in comics like two months apart. And they look the very, era, very yeah. similar. Man-Thing is a different face, but otherwise they look exactly the same. And to the creator's credit, both of them, neither of them there's, has ever caused to stink about there's it. There's never been a lawsuit or they, anything. There's yeah. never been, oh, I created that and he ripped me off. It's like, no, apparently they were both ripping off a character called The Heap. Yeah, from, from the an old 40s. EC, yeah, yeah so. from an old EC comics. This, like, sort of shambling swamp mask that told scary stories in anthology comics. Mm -hmm. So they were both like, look, neither of us were very clever. Yeah. <laughs> we're just, we're, we we're both just came up thing. with a swamp thingy. Both of them had, like, a, a like this weird mystical dimension as yeah. well. I know there's, like, a whole army of, of man-things in the comics. Yeah. Uh, man-thing had a cameo. I actually looked this up. Mm. In, uh, in one of the Thor movies. Uh, was he one of the in, Thor in Thor Ragnarok, the one where they go to the gladiatorial yeah. arena, yeah. there's like a big uh, like spire with like faces of their champions carved into it, and Man Thing is one of the champions on that. Really, film. I don't remember Man it's, Thing. It's being really, it. it's really. I remember brief, looking at that, but, yeah. and I think there was like a ode to like Beta Ray Bill in there or something, something like that. Like that. I don't yeah. remember other Man obscure characters. There's there was a reference to it in Agents of Shield early on as well. Oh, okay. um, there was uh, Kobe Smolders was talking about. Oh, I had to go in front of Congress again today. I had to explain what the fuck a Man thing was oh that's cute it was cute so so uh, here here's the yeah. unusual thing um so basically whoever kills the man thing yeah. gets the stone that's the plot uh th this takes place in the marvel cinematic universe yeah so that this these characters although they don't make any reference to mm -hmm. the main avengers these could mm -hmm. interact ostensibly interact with the Avengers. yeah down the line yeah. uh what i found really curious about werewolf by night is it introduces this whole new wrinkle mm -hmm. that uh there are mo monster hunters and monsters mm-hmm and have uh, been for a long time. And have been for a long time. And 
the movies have been doing this for a little while now. They've introduced like the Eternals, like they were on Earth thousands of years yeah. ago. Uh, this idea, though, that we started with, with all of this nonsense in 2008 mm-hmm. with Iron Man, mm-hmm. and Iron Man ostensibly took place in the real world. Like yes, Iron Man it was, was the, the real first world, one, but there was yeah, an Iron Man. But there was yeah. an Iron Man in it, and it was yeah. actually a lot more about real world concerns. And I think that's one of the reasons I think I'm drawn to that movie because it mm-hmm. actually can address Iron Man directly without mm-hmm. the machinations of the larger universe. Yeah. Uh, and the, the Marvel movies were pretty good about mm-hmm. trying to remain at least somewhat grounded for a little while. <laughs> the first wave of Avengers yeah. movies were basically, it's the real world. And then Thor landed in New Mexico. Yeah. There's a little thing there, but most people never even like, know like about all that. Like all that Thor yeah. world there's is a pretty se- crazy. There's but... a secret story that happened in World War II. Most people think it was just some guy in a propaganda costume made a couple of movies and mm-hmm. it was kind of fictional. Like, no, it was but a real guy. But it's World War II. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's, there's, a little, trying... there's a little removal. Yeah. Um, and, and I, you know, then even when they did something like Guardians of the Galaxy, it's like, no, this is like out in space yeah. and the, they just haven't interacted so with her. So you, you, can, you can at, at home least alone kind of, yeah. can sort of like close your put, eyes put, and imagine you're in that universe. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't until I, th- and I think the turning point was Doctor Strange you because think? Doctor Strange was the first film that said uh, there's not like any kind of scientific or realistic basis in any of this. We're not like even in, when there's like magic gems. Yeah, it's like one mystical element in sort of a sci-fi universe. And even when they introduced Thor, a mm. god, they mm. specifically said in the first yeah, Thor they movie, really tried to give a lot of lip service to. Oh, he's not really a god; he's a yeah. space alien. The idea was it's this not is magic, not magic; it's like super science. They said it's and... not magic; it's sci-fi, mm. and all the stuff that seems like magic is just sci-fi stuff we don't understand. So Thor is not a god. Thor is an actual guy named Thor, but. They visited Earth. They're so old that they visited Earth a long time ago, and people confuse them for their god, or they base their gods Which, on them. Yeah, it's what it's it's. But you know what? Star Trek did that shit all the time. I, I suppose that's so, that's I grandfathered said. in there. That's something that is okay for sci-fi <laughs> to do. It's a little wonky, it's, and it's, it's obviously an excuse pretty, to make uh, it work. But they cared enough to make that a thing, and then some some. I think Doctor Strange is part of it, but even then they try to make it sound like it's just a science people don't understand. Mm. In the last... But they called it like mystic arts and magic Agreed. and teleportation. It was just magic at that point. And, and I th- they, they were literal wizards. And I think it seems like this year in particular, they just stopped caring. Yeah. Because even Thor, who they specifically said was not a god, was confused for a god mm. and is just part of a godlike species. Now he's like, he's the actual god of thunder. There are all of these other gods. If you believe in them, they're gods. That's right. And like, the last one we got, yeah. we meet Zeus and other deities. Yeah. Uh, and like, and, so, and, he, and these are not like aliens. These are mm. actually the gods. Like they flat mm. out said, they're all gods. Gods mm. are real. And... We're just backtracking on that and hoping nobody fucking yeah. notices, so, aren't we? So, what, <laughs> so yes, I'm, I'm also, magic is also real and always has been. I, I'm watching Werewolf by Night and like, oh yeah, werewolves. Yeah, and we, we're just fine. Now, with now that. we just take that in stride. Like anything's possible in this universe, which mm. kind of like for me that takes the gas off. Well, it's like there, there's not anything that I can be astonished by in this well, world. Well, that's well. Here's the thing, though, and this is the thing that I think is kind of interesting, whether or not it's good, mm. um, is that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is now becoming basically the Marvel Comic Book Universe. Yeah, yeah. Because the Marvel Comic so Book Universe started is, with yeah. a couple of comics as well and just got mm. bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, and and now, now we're in a universe introduced. where it has its own history yeah. and Thanos yeah. wiped out the universe and they were resurrected. All of these all things, this stuff, and yeah. it's just you can't keep these stories going 
and raising stakes and introducing new elements in stories that are allegedly interconnected without acknowledging all those things are interconnected and all of those things are really, really happening. And by that point, your story is just weird now. Mm. <laughs> and you either embrace that it's just weird now and everyone lives in a really... This is one of the reasons why I like She-Hulk so much. The She-Hulk series... Well, it's like more about more practical matters. Yeah, it's beyond someone who gets superpowers but still does their day job. And as a result, you get to see more about how superhero stuff affects day job type stuff. Mm. And there's something about that that honestly, for me, reminds me of why I like this stuff in a way that a lot of the other stuff, even the stuff I like, oh. isn't, it's just sort of like, I'm enjoying it, but the new She-Hulk is just like, yeah, it would be weird to be a lawyer where all this weird shit can happen. Well, Wouldn't that change yeah. everything? The, the law is being yeah. affected in this universe. Yeah. We have to address that. There's uh, a great There's a great episode of She-Hulk where it's just basically about how you know, a superhero, they get called their superhero name in the media, and everyone calls them that. You have to trademark that shit, or someone else Someone's is going to exploit it. There's, that's a whole point. Like, I, that's kind I of remember, interesting. Um, I, I saw a clip where yeah. She-Hulk said, wait, somebody else is calling themselves She-Hulk, that was me. Yeah. It's like, well, you never copyrighted She-Hulk. And she says, well, Dr. Strange didn't copyright his name. And, and she says, that's his name. His, his name actual is name Do- is Dr. Strange. Dr. Stephen Strange is that person's name. He doesn't... Yeah. Need to copyright his name. Exactly. So the all of these things are just kind of like these fun little wrinkles mm. here. This is taking off, taking place off in a little corner. And this, honestly, if this had no connection to the MCU, it'd be a fun short in and of itself. Mm. And I like the 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 spooky vibes. I like. There's a really great bit at the beginning where all of the uh, monster hunters are collected in a room. And in order to explain the premise, they wheel out the corpse of Ulysses Bloodstone and they had him turned into an animatronic out of Disneyland. Yeah, His actual corpse. And, and they use a physical effect, which is really cool, yeah. like a practical effect. I kind of wish uh, it had more of that Funhouse vibe. I kind of yeah. wish it was taking place on Halloween and there were jack-o'-lanterns everywhere. Uh, well, like, like, go for it, you know? Like, the, why hold yeah. back at this point? Michael Giacchino is clearly into, like, sort of that monster stuff, but it, it feels like... Like, this film isn't going far enough in any of its capacities. The, no. the monsters aren't interesting enough. The monster like the monster hunters aren't interesting enough. No, most of them are pretty uh, much... They're defined by their look. There's the burly one. Yeah. yeah. There's the David Bowie uh, one. It's, you know? it's not really funny. It's not really scary. Mm-hmm. Um, Gael Garcia Barnell has a, a few good moments. I like that. Uh, I don't, Gael Garcia Barnell is carrying a lot of this based on his personality. Yeah. And his personality has always been pretty affable. Mm-hmm. Like, just very... Just, he can he, play he, intense roles. You know, but yeah, he is? you know what he is in this? And I like it, actually. He's soft. He's a a softy. He's a sweet guy in a way that even a lot of like, you know, we think about like how a lot of the characters are sort of friendly, Uh amiable guys, but they're not necessarily soft. Chris Pratt is playing an asshole in Guardians of the Galaxy. Werewolf by Night is a guy who would be like, oh, hey, superheroes, I was just reading my poetry with my Mm. cup of tea. Like that kind of thing. Like he's very mild. And I really like that. Um, That's a nice little touch. It would be nice if the if the other if the other characters were given a chance to sort of express themselves a little bit so he yeah. could stand as a counterpoint yeah uh, as it stands, he stands as a counterpoint to sort of like a broader idea of what we already know about this universe Agreed. rather than the yeah. characters in the actual film uh, and he uh, it turns out he's friends with with man thing. Mm-hmm. And man He's thing, here to save man thing man thing is, is like a nine foot shambling <laughs> swamp creature yeah and in the Brett Leonard movie, <laughs> it's a monster. Yeah, yeah, it's like a big scary thing. It's got like yeah. a hort, like antler branches, yeah. and like it's actually kind of a, a monstrous. 
It doesn't have any dialogue. It no. sort of lurks out of the shadows I, and kills people. That's not a good movie, but I will give it that much. The man thing looks great the, in that The man movie. thing looks great. It's a really cool practical effect. Mm. It looks really super scary, and they film it well. Yeah. It's not Again, the movie itself, I've seen worse, but it's not very good. Uh, the man thing kicks ass in that movie. It's yeah, a really, it, really great monster. It, in this one, man thing CGI, uh, yeah. naturally, and... And and they kind of also made this man thing a little too cuddly. It's like, yeah. can we have a, a big scary swamp monster? Well, Do we have to take the both? edge off of everything? Can it's... it be both? And like, there's, there's even a bit towards the end because you know, it's called Werewolf by Night. Eventually, mm-hmm. it's going to turn into a werewolf, right? Mm-hmm. And they try to make it like super intense. I actually think that uh, Giacchino shot it. I think he was trying to like play some of it in shadow to get away with. This is actually relatively violent for Marvel. There's a lot there's, of like there's blood, but it's black blood, and white. It's blood, but it's black and white. People get arms chopped off in a very Star Warsy kind of way, where they can still walk around afterwards. Mm. Um, but it feels like the big climax, where there's a big werewolf action and a bunch of people are getting mauled, is filmed too dark. You're just not mm. seeing enough of it. Yeah. And I'm gonna say this right now, and this is just personal preference. I'm not gonna give the movie any demerits for this whatsoever. But I am going to talk about it because I'm curious if anyone else cares about this the way I do. I appreciate that this movie is very much inspired by, visually and I think character-wise, by the Wolfman. Yeah. The Lon Chaney version of the Wolfman. Uh, one of the most iconic movie monsters. And a great movie. I like Oh Wolfman yeah, that movie exists. That's a great motion picture. Everyone should see it. Um, for me, if your Wolfman doesn't have a pronounced snout... <laughs> He doesn't look like a wolf to me. It never reads wolf. It looks like a human nose. You need to have... It doesn't need to be as extreme as in dog soldiers. Mm -hmm. But if it's just a dude's face covered in hair... It never reads Wolfman to me. It always... What about Werewolf by Night? Or uh, uh, Werewolf uh, Werewolf of London, excuse me. Well, he actually turns into an actual wolf by the end of that. So it's a gradual the, transformation, yeah. and indeed we do but for see a lot the, of that the movie snout, is just like a hairy guy. But it's a, but it's a gradual transformation, and he turns more and more wolf-like over it, and I'm allowing that. The but howling not, is a great not werewolf of London. He just turns into a hairy guy. No, 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 no. Towards the end, he turns into a fucking wolf. Does he? Yeah. All right. And it, I think it's been a while since you've seen it, but mm. uh, the howling has a great fucking wolf in mm. it, like that underrated werewolf movie, an underrated werewolf transformation, because yeah. it came out around the same time as American Werewolf in London. Mm. I prefer the howling. I know that's sacrilege, but I do. Uh, so for me, I I want a snout. It doesn't need to be all the time, but if you're going to completely wolf out, I want a snout. And you're doing it in CG anyway, make a fucking snout. It just reads more werewolf to me. I'm not mad, but to me, that doesn't read werewolf. Mm. That reads more ape guy. Yeah, You know, it just doesn't quite, yeah, whatever. That's not either here nor there. I, I think, uh, I, I don't know, the, the whole sort of like, soft cuddliness that you were talking mm-hmm. about uh, that they gave to Werewolf by Night. Uh-huh. And they also gave to Man-Thing. Yeah. Uh, I feel like that's most of the characters. Like, they're trying mm-hmm. to make these violent soldier characters yeah. in these interstellar wars. Uh, too friendly. Uh, yeah, they're too friendly. They're too friendly with each other. They're yeah. too... Uh, they're, they're, there's a scene... Oh, God. Okay. The Man-Thing knows how to operate a French press in this. It's like... <laughs> and while... <laughs> There's a there's a world where that like that image is like nice and absurd, but it doesn't yeah. read as absurd here. It's just that's just no. what these characters that, and are. And that's something and, uh, I listen. I actually agree with that. I mm. think the Marvel Cinematic Universe in particular has had this desperate need to be liked. Yeah, every everything's t- 
little too yeah. affable. And that's, yeah. uh, I know that's a common complaint, but it's yeah. still Well, the, the more they make, the more it gets compounded. And yeah, they're very, very likable. But in order for that to work, we need contrast. Mm. As you introduce more likable characters, we need to introduce more unlikable characters. Mm. More characters who are, maybe they're not evil, or, or dark, but they're just yeah. hard asses. Or they're... Or a darker, more extreme world yeah. where they could, like... Sound counter to that. We stuff. need a contrast because, again, it's it, this is what we talked about. When we said everything feels the same in the Marvel Cinematic mm. Universe. It's the tone. Yeah. Even where, listen, and I appreciate that Marvel is at least willing to let its TV projects mm. be a little, di- little bit different. Well, they're letting it be visually different at the very least. WandaVision has a visual distinction. Yeah. Werewolf by Night is black and white, just like a lot of parts of WandaVision. That's great. I'm glad that we're able to expand visually, but what we need is an expansion of tone. Mm. And I think as long as there's some consistent overlap, like one character has that Marvel tone, you can do all the rest of it different. Yeah. Because the world is a big fucking place, especially in the Marvel Cinematic Universe where you can travel to literally the end of the universe. Different dimensions and shit. There better be some different fucking people in there. And we need that contrast. And I think this would have been a good opportunity to do that. I think that's holding it back. Yeah. I had a good time with this. Uh, I mean, it's it's I, fine. It's yeah. not offensive. It's just, you know, yeah. not, not extraordinary. Yeah. And I'm listen, I, you, know, you know what I was thinking as I was watching this? Because, listen, I, I always liked Man-Thing. I always <laughs> thought it was just a weird-looking monster, and yeah. I thought it was fun. It's, it's I, just, yeah. just a monster. I loved, yeah. I loved Elsa, Elsa Bloodstone ever since uh, Next Wave, Agents of Hate. Which is one of the better Marvel stories that they've ever done. Uh, it was basically uh, what if there a bunch of superheroes were enlisted by an alternate version of Shield, and every single one of them was a piece of shit. Like they're just all terrible, terrible, terrible people. But they're not evil. They're just complete they're just assholes. <laughs> so they were called Next Wave, Agents of Hate, and it was H A T E was an act. Yeah, I forget course. what it stood for. Um, so she was in that, and I've been a fond of her ever since. And uh, while I've never particularly been keen on Werewolf by Night because it's just kind of a werewolf, I like Gail Garcia Bernal mm. so much as an actor. <laughs> I've always been a fan. I think he's a really, really great actor. And a part of me, I'm watching this, I'm like, you get that paycheck. Yeah, you get that Marvel money. You deserve it was, that. It wasn't very good. What was the Michelle Gond- Michel Gondry film? Oh, Science, Science of Sleep. Sleep. That's he's, a sweet film. He's good in that. It's it's it's, it's a bit of a shabby affair, but it's, yeah, he's really good. In it's that. a little disposable for for Gondry, but like it's it's a very sweet movie. If you yeah. ever just want to watch something that's just kind of good natured uh, and kind. Dude, no, you should put on these these three D glasses. You'll see the world differently. Are they just three D glasses? Yeah, but I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> He's, he's really guy. good at that movie. He's really I'm a big, big fan. I'm seriously happy. Seriously, I'm just happy he's getting that paycheck. <laughs> I, I just, I'm happy for him. So you know what? Mm. Kudos. Mm. Could have been a lot worse. Let's move on. Let's talk, Let's do a huge about face and let's uh. talk about Todd Fields' his first film in like 16 years. It's been a while. Yeah. Todd Field uh, is, Todd Field or Fields? Fee- Fields. Fields? Uh, to- oh no, Todd Field. Todd Field. Single. Singular. Yeah. Todd Field is an actor. Uh, you may remember him from something like Eyes Wide Shut. He played mm-hmm. the pianist who was uh, enlisted to play at the orgy, and that's how Tom Cruise finds out about it. Um, Nick Mickengale is his yeah. character's name. Uh, he directed some of the more acclaimed dramas of the of the 2000s, mm-hmm. in particular the Best Picture nominee In the Bedroom, which is really great. Uh, please see In the Bedroom. That's By good. the way, it is I, a really good movie. It's yeah. not, not talked about enough. No. It's the kind of adult drama that just mm-hmm. doesn't get... 
entered into the conversation. Tom Wilkinson in that movie. God damn. Yeah, everyone's Tom, great in that movie, but Tom Wilkinson. Tom Wilkinson, Jesus yeah. Christ. Uh, and he also did a movie that was a little bit more Todd Salonzi called Little Children. Yeah, it was, it, yeah. It, it was really preachy. had this weird narration. Yeah. It was based on a novel. And, uh, There's good stuff in it. I don't think yeah. it's as I don't think it's as strong a work as... Uh, it's it's two stories yeah. going simultaneously. One is yeah. about Patrick Wilson having an affair with Kate Winslet uh, yeah. and... Uh, like another mom in the neighborhood, and yeah. the other uh, one is about a child predator played by Jackie uh, Earl. Uh, yeah, a, a child yeah. predator who had, was released from prison and was trying to move yeah. back in with his mom and yeah. like make sense of his life. It, it really does feel like Todd Field saw happiness and it was like, I can kind of do that. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and he kind of did it. It's not not yeah. as good as happiness. It's, it, there's good acting in it. I'm not a huge fan. Uh, he's back with a new film called Tar uh, about a. Uh, a conductor con- yeah a, con- a concert conductor uh, not like a train conductor like they conduct music played by <laughs> Kate Blanchett she plays a conductor named Lydia Tarr she is according to the film uh, one of the world's leading conductors one of the world's leading experts in music an EGOT according to the, uh, yep. the mythology which the means movie. they which means that this is one of the few people in the world who have won an Emmy a Grammy an Oscar and a Tony although they never quite say how she won a Tony um and uh, yeah, she's one of the most respected people in the musical field in the world, and she is a piece of shit. <laughs> she's she's, a, she's a really rough she, person. She's a piece of work, isn't she? Yeah. Um, I I love this character. By oh the yeah. Way. I, I, Not the, only is Kate Blanchett great, yeah. but I love the construction of this character. Oh, it's brilliantly she, conceived. Yeah, she's um, playing a bad person, but hmm. she's a brilliantly playing it. Hmm. And the movie is about that. And the movie is about uh, this period in this this one short period in her life where she's about to complete this giant recording cycle. She's on all of the works of Mahler, except but the, for the the iconic Symphony Number no. Five. Yeah, and, and she's about to do the iconic Symphony Number no. Five, which she's getting the, the it ready, and she's getting ready to put out a book. And meanwhile. All of the various people that uh, she's screwed over, and in some case, in some no, cases, just, uh, just the people she's wrong. The various people she's wronged in a variety of ways: the people she's slept with, mm-hmm. the people she's screwed over in work. All of these things are starting to come back into her like life Lee in a, and small in a ways, confluence yeah. that's now, probably not going to go well for her. D- the movie is about that, yeah. but the movie takes its damn time, and it's, I really appreciate. This is that. a nearly three-hour movie, but it were yeah, But yeah. I will say this: it. Doesn't feel it. Well, it's a I, long I, I film, but it doesn't. It, it, well, I don't know about not feeling it, but uh, it's, it doesn't feel. Let me wait. It never it, drags. It doesn't drag. Yeah, that's, that's you, you're sure. enjoying you're, the, you're, the whole experience. You're engrossed throughout, and yeah. uh, the movie starts with a lot of, and I love this. Just interviews with the New Yorker yeah. and conversations in fancy restaurants, and then a teaching and, uh, a class at teaching Juilliard. a class. Yeah, and I yeah. like loved all of these scenes because they're all about musical theory and why this why Lydia Tarr is kind of an important figure in this universe. Mm -hmm. And she actually has a lot of interesting ideas and we understand, uh, how impassioned and how intelligent she is Mm -hmm. and the world she runs in. And we are convinced over the course of these three main sequences at the beginning of the movie, the audience is successfully, you're not just, you can just tell us she's great. Mm -hmm. The audience gets it. Yeah. Like, like, it's not like at Finding Forrester where you tell us Sean Connery is a great writer and we just believe you. We can't, read his books mm. we don't know that Kate Blanchett is so convincing and we get to see her really show off what she knows mm. and what she can do that you just like I yeah. buy it okay and, cool and here, let's go and here's the wonderful thing about the way Kate Blanchett plays mm-hmm. this part and I, it bothered me at the beginning until I realized what she was doing mm-hmm. but uh, her answers for a lot of these questions about sort of high mm. high minded uh, very 
deep cuts, uh, mm-hmm. deeply educated uh, theories about music, uh, she doesn't really come across as really extemporaneous. Mm-hmm. This isn't something that she can just sort of throw off. She Everything feels really kind of rehearsed with her. Yeah. She's spent a good deal of her time and energy mm-hmm. trying to be a certain kind of a person. Cultivate an aesthetic, yeah. the and air of respectability. The air of respectability. And for the longest time, and this is uh, very much a movie about class as well. Oh, and yeah. I don't want to go into entirely why, yeah. because that would uh, spoil a few things. There's but, a lot um, of really good stuff in this movie that I want to talk about that we just shouldn't. We, we just shouldn't because I, yeah. I think you should discover it for yourself. Yeah. But, uh, the like the rooms in which she is, you know, Todd Field really co- sort of constructed these salivatingly alluring, mm-hmm. well-moneyed wealth spaces. Yeah. Oh, the production design uh, of this movie is impeccable. Yeah. Like the the yeah. offices are all like very very broad, and you know have mm. you know the the uh, like very specific art on the mm-hmm. walls and the way the bookshelves are are set up. Uh, her uh, composing lab is like, oh, it's like, I want to move in there. Um, <laughs> there there's something this just, just wonderful. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's like, I know it's like wealth porn, but I think this yeah. is actually really uh, like thought out. Yeah. It's not just trying to present well, wealth porn. She's, she's rich and she's clearly very obsessive compulsive mm. uh, in regards to her attention to detail and, um, and as a result, she can afford to have everything just so. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, she lives with. Uh, she, she's married to the first violinist in her orchestra. Yeah, in the in the Berlin um, Orchestra. Yeah, she's yeah. played by. Um, is it Nina Haas? Nina, yes, that's right. Nina. Yeah, Haas. she's um, great in this movie. And, yeah, and she she's uh, sort of like the the suffering wife, and we yeah. actually get to see through her eyes the way uh, mm. Lydia Tarr. Uh, can actually be a flip and quite irresponsible from time to time. Mm -hmm. But she's earned this sort of spot of privilege in this intelligentsia universe that a lot of people are willing to uh, accept an element of brashness because with it comes brilliance. Well, uh, she she talks a lot, especially in the Juilliard class bit Mm. at the beginning, she talks about how our judgment of artists' lives, Mm. she believes that it doesn't affect their brilliance. And this is Mm. an important part of her personality because it gives her the freedom to behave however she really wants to. Mm. And so when she talks about, like, oh yeah, and Bach did all of these terrible things, Mm. and this famous composer was famously a misogynist or a racist, but, oh, their stuff makes your heart really sing. Mm. That is an attitude that she and other people around them have really internalized. Yeah. Well, that, that's bad behavior or mm. immorality or just stuff that we wouldn't mm. necessarily approve of in day-to-day life is forgivable if you're great. Well, and that's, and that's something that's yeah. actually very much in the critical discourse right now. Yeah. Uh, the, the notion, you know, the de- death of the author is, yeah. is the, the critical term. Uh, can you quote, separate the art, from separate the art from the artist. Yeah. Can, can you appreciate a grand work of art? If you know, the artist is to be, a, is a monster. Yeah. What's the statute of limitations on that? If they've been dead long enough, can yeah. you appreciate their greatness? There are limits to this. And there are people whose, uh, mm. you know, gauges are different on this. And uh, Lydia mm. Tarr clearly believes in the work and doesn't care about the artist. Yeah. And for uh, a while, she, Todd she's Field... able to compartmentalize. And Todd Field is such an excellent writer director that, Although it's very clear as the movie progresses that his own perspective on that is more nuanced. Yeah. Uh, 
Like she he's, has, he's, he's pretty ambivalent about it. Actually, I, I like that about I, it. No, I, I said nuance for a mm. reason because I think you can get a lot of different things out of this. But I think mm. by the end of it, I don't think this is an irresponsible work. I think it's a thoughtful no, 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 work no, no, trying no, to no. talk about this from multiple angles. But at the beginning of the movie, she is so forceful and mm. adamant in her arguments about why bad behavior from artists is irrelevant and sometimes maybe even encouraged because it creates these incredible achievements. Mm. And she clearly sees herself as potentially capable of making those achievements so she can do mm. what she what she does over the course of the film. She's so strident and compelling and I just use the critical buzzword. She's so charismatic. <laughs> right. She's so convincing that she believes what she's saying and that she's created these seemingly bulletproof arguments that support every single thing she says, whether or not you and the audience agree with them. That for a moment you almost think, oh, is the movie just going to sell us on this creepiness? But it's no, it is right now because that's what this scene is about. And it's so fucking beautifully acted. <laughs> it's, oh, she's good in this movie. Well, Todd Fields convinced me of multiple points. And I yeah. think that's the kind of the brilliance of Tar. I, yeah. I, I love, love this movie. Yeah. Uh, th this is one of the best movies of the year. Like, Certainly so far, bar yeah. none. And, yeah. uh in the creation of the character and the creation of the world and in this uh, moral examination uh, of a, a person uh, as an artist mm -hmm. and how their, their own bad behavior. And I, I don't want to keep on harping on the bad behavior because that's actually like the back half of the movie. It, it makes it seem uh, like it's like, Oh, they're like, just, they're like just it, this It's not this preponderance movie. It's actually it, very, it's textured. Not, there's a lot going it's on. It's not Dickensian, but it's basically, but it is about how someone who, is making some mistakes in their life and how you're watching the first half and you realize that this is just a small part mm. of everything they do. And then as the movie progresses, different things become the focus. Yeah. And other things become not the focus, even though they're still arguably just as true. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's so frustrating because it's a three hour movie and we're trying to distill it into a short conversation. <laughs> and unlike a lot of three hour movies where they're just long because stuff happens. Or, or here, they just sort of took their time yeah, in a scene. Here ideas and themes and uh, uh, philosophies are explored and evolve and unevolve mm. and come back. And mm. I, this is one of those movies that is so frustrating because I want to talk about everything up to and including the ending, okay. which without saying anything without, I'm not going to say, we, I think the ending of this movie is great. <laughs> I was wondering where we're going to stop because uh, this movie's so long. We're taking, we're following Lydia Tarr throughout so much, yeah, so many we, events. Where she ends up is a pretty yeah. interesting it's, spot. And it's a really important thing to choose. Where is this, especially when it's just a character story. It's not necessarily mm. a story about like an event and like, oh, and then this person won the race. Well, I guess it ends there. Mm. It's like, no, no, no. This is a character study. So where you decide to leave off this character is very significant. And I think that the choice Todd Field made is brilliant. Um, but I want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about I, I that. I want to talk about the back half. I want to talk about the revelations. About, um, it's so just, frustrating because I want to tell mm. everyone so There's, many interesting things about this movie. Uh, and it's also a queer film. Lydia, uh, Lydia yeah. Tarr is, is uh, in her own words, a U-Haul lesbian. Yeah. That, that's her phrase for describing herself. Yeah. Um, uh, she doesn't really expound on what that means. It mm. makes a little sense later in the movie. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, her queerness is never brought up as something that shocks other people. Yep. Until it does. Yeah. And I think it's kind of uh, 
brilliantly insidious the way the homophobia starts to mm-hmm. leak in around the edges of the people around Lydia Tar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's another element that actually kind of complicates this well, to wh- a, a great degree. Again, it's a class. Yeah. Wealth and success and acclaim yeah. uh, kind of, make that kind less of, of an issue for her bubble, for a long a bubble time. Around her, and yeah. as her life gets more complicated, other factors are allowed mm-hmm. to sort of seep in. Um, this is an incredibly complex yet absolutely involving film. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a downer, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I oh, saw this late at night after I had a really rough day, and I was like, you know what, I'm just so glad to get out of the house and go to the <laughs> movies, and we're going to go see a movie. And I literally knew nothing about this movie it's other changed. than Todd Field, Kate Blanchett, and she's a conductor. That's it. Mm. That's all I knew. I managed to avoid everything else about it. And then I'm like, ah, oh, this is depressing, but so good! It's so good. It's so good. It's so, good. so, seriously, you want to see... And this doesn't even mean anything anymore. But you want to see a master class of acting from Kate Blanchett? <laughs> like most of her movies. Like, like she's she's. I've lost track of how many like all timer performances she's mm-hmm. given. This is upper echelon Kate Blanchett. Nina Haas is great in this. Uh, we didn't mention her. Naomi uh, Merlant Merlant from, from uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Yeah, she's in this. She plays uh, Kate Blanchett's personal assistant. That's a she brings a lot of good work and complexity to that role. Um, this movie is great. Mm. It's long and it's a little sad, but it is riveting and it is impeccably crafted. And I highly recommend everybody see this. Definitely. definitely. If you get a chance, one, do not miss one, it. If, if it's playing in your town, just go see it in a theater because yeah. no. it is great. Now we have two more movies left. You saw one. I saw the other. And neither right. of the twain saw me. Tell me about Triangle of Sadness. Uh, Triangle of Sadness uh, is the latest film from Ruben Ostlund. Mm, the director uh, of Square. Of The Square uh, mm. and, um, and Force Majeure. Uh, Force Majeure. Yeah. yeah. Force uh, Majeure, which sadly, no geometry. Sadly, no. it's not like this. It's not like uh, the fear. It's fear. Sphere majeure. It's no. It's just no. A, a Although uh, square and a triangle. You could take triangle of sadness. Uh, Go on. Uh, the square uh, that uh, 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 James Ponsolt movie, The Circle, oh, and Ty West's X, and you you have a, a PlayStation <laughs> controller. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <Yes>. But, uh, <laughs> I'm so glad we did this. <laughs> glad I could take you on that little journey. <laughs> No, stop! Put that down! Uh, no, uh, this is Ruben Ostlund. He did this, uh, The Square, which was a really uh, fun, uh, very biting satire of the high art world. Um, it's about an artist who has made a square. That's his piece of art. It's mm. a square in the concrete. Kind of yeah. absurd, and he gets involved in his own sort of thing. But uh, there's a lot of asides in that movie. The best part of the movie is a part that has nothing to do with the main character, where... Um, they're doing a performance art piece for this fancy dress dinner, and there's yeah. all these very rich old people, and they're you know eating fancy foods, and they say, and we're gonna have a study in in uh, like primitive savagery, and they get uh, a performer uh, who's he's actually been in like Planet of the Apes movies, and you know mm. he's, he's good like a movement coach, he's studied mime uh, to come out like sort of in this like ape uh, sort of like these things on his arms where he can walk around on his hands and he's kind of, mm. and his idea is just, he's going to act like an ape and he's going to act like, you know, an animal. And he kind of like starts growling. Then he takes it a little too far. Like he gets up on the table and starts breaking stuff. And eventually he takes the whole room hostage. It's just, this, and everybody's too polite to get up or do anything. They're just sort of sitting here. Don't pick me. Don't pick me. And this guy's like <laughs> knocking chairs over and screaming at them like an ape. Great scene. 
uh, Ruben Ostlund clearly has it in for the upper class, mm. and that's what Triangle of Sadness is all about. Uh, Triangle of Sadness uh, takes place mostly on uh, a yacht, this big expensive yacht, uh, and all of these incredibly, incredibly, incredibly rich people. So rich, they, they've lost contact with like the regular world are on this cruise and they all behave in a really absurd fashion. The, the staff is told right at the beginning to never say no. These are rich people. You say, yes, yes, I can do that. And it becomes pretty absurd when one of them says to the captain, who's played by Woody Harrelson, uh, I, I noticed that the sails are dirty. Can you clean the sails? It's a yacht. There are no sails. <laughs> on the yacht. And, and yeah, Woody Harrelson says, sure, we can do that. One of the, one of the wait staff is asked to get into a, a hot tub and this rich Russian lady says, you know what? I want everybody to just take a break. I want the entire staff of the ship to go on a water slide with me. And wouldn't you know what they have to? It's bloody inconvenient for them. They've got a They've job to do. The it's like people like constant playing, maintenance. playing cards and smoking cigarettes on their break or they're working on engines or they're cleaning rooms. It's like, no, I don't want no. And so for this rich woman, everybody's having a wonderful time. Uh, wouldn't you know what this act interrupts uh, a bit of the uh, of uh, sort of the schedule of the day. Mm. That night, they have to have the captain's dinner. It's a big event. It happens to fall on the night when they're expecting rough weather. Yeah. And everybody's fallen behind, so they have to push everything back. It's a lot of rough weather. They had to, had to start giving everybody a little extra champagne. I can see, I can see where the they sadness start, is coming They start eating all this food, and there is a brilliant, like, maybe 20-minute sequence where everybody fucking vomits everywhere. <laughs> 20 it's, minutes of vomiting. It, it's, there's a long sequence where people are just puking, and it's fucking great. <laughs> And toilets are backing up, and we see people pooping their pants. There's a, and, and the ship's tilting. There's one really wonderful shot where this rich woman's puking in a toilet. The ship tilts. She slides across the vomity floor away from the toilet, has to wait for the ship to tilt back so she can slide back and grab onto the toilet again. Oh, God. Oh, it's great. <laughs> oh, my God. When it's the most disgusting, this film really sings. Uh, that yacht sequence, however, is only the middle portion of this movie. Mm. Oh, and eventually, of course, uh, the yacht goes down. Because, of course, it does. Yeah. The first part of this movie is completely useless because we're introduced to, uh, like, the first act, part one. Uh, We're introduced to um, Harris Dickinson and uh, Charles B. Dean, or these young models. And, you know, they're they're the young, beautiful people, and they're Instagram influencers. They won the trip on on this yacht. And their argument is about who's going to pay the bill at the restaurant. And they're all really petty. And they're both petty about money. They're in their 20s and they're young and they're beautiful. Right. And they yell at each other a lot, but they don't say anything. Like, mm. I, you need to listen to me. This is what, what this is really about. But he never really says what this is really about. And they yell and they yell and they yell. And they text each other and they yell. And it's like it's vaguely funny in this sort of like bitter, satirical kind of a way. But it doesn't have like the punch that Ruben Ostlund is clearly going for. Okay. It's just a way to introduce these two characters who really aren't like only among some of the major characters. Okay. The third part of this movie is on the desert Island. And that's actually the longest part of this movie where they're stranded on the desert Island. And we're introduced to this rather simple notion that rich people have no skills. They don't produce anything. They don't do anything. Yeah. Uh, they 
And if they were lost on a desert island, they couldn't fend for themselves. Well, so they're they're doing things like fighting over pretzel sticks. I mean, we've seen that from everything from Gilligan's Island to Swept Away. Yeah, uh, yeah. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know, the yeah. the, the uh, what was it? The um, the alien species at the end that were all like uh, yeah. the, the useless people on the third ship. Oh yeah, like basically, uh, the, the, yeah. We're, the, 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 I forgot the name of the species. Yeah, but, the yeah. We, we put all of the really important people. We put all of the people with necessary survival skills on one ship when the planet was destroyed. All the great we put, thinkers on, on another ship. ship, and then we put everyone else on this other ship. Yeah, like <laughs> just like everyone who's completely me, useless. Meter readers and accountants yeah. and people who like don't have like useful skills. And then in, they, in Douglas Adams. Then they eyes. crash on a planet, and their first thought is like, okay. Well, we're going to need currency. I got it. There's a lot of trees. We'll make the leaf the currency. Well, that... Inflation's up uh, out of the, out of our hands. There's so many leaves. Burn them all! Yeah. <laughs> Just burn down the trees. First thing you do. Like, Jesus well, Christ, I suppose. So how, how's the wheel coming? Well, we're on week six of inventing the wheel. How can you be on week six of inventing the wheel? Well, you decide the color it's going to be. Uh, <laughs> and that was also a coda at the end of uh, Don't Look Up. Um, yeah. Um, um, yeah. A, 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 a very hated movie that... I didn't hate. I don't like it, but I didn't hate it. Um, yeah. I, but yeah, th- it, it that, really rubbed me the wrong way. That last scene, I thought, was probably fun. No, though. that that's yeah. one of the better parts of the film. I agree yeah. with that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of that going on, and that one of the one of the people on this uh, island, she's actually like to the rich people, she was nameless cleaning lady. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's played by an actress, uh, a Philippine actress named uh, Dolly De Leon. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and she, uh, it turns out, she does have some skills. She knows how to catch fish mm. and make fire. And she she immediately says, okay, I'm the captain. Yeah. Call me captain. Well, and, yeah. she, and so she starts calling the shots and everybody kind of falls in line behind her after a while. Good. And to the point where she's like demanding boyfriends and stuff. Okay. It's, it's pretty wild. Okay. Uh, it's two hours and 20 minutes. Uh, that first act is dead weight. It's how no, long is that? Because it sounds like it's really long. It, it's it's like twenty minutes of the movie. Uh, that that's first not a good. And, that's yeah. not a good ratio. But what everything on the ship is brilliant. Where everybody's like drunk and puking. That's great. <laughs> uh, I loved all the disgusting part because Ruben Ostland is clearly trying to make fools of these ultra rich people. Sure, and they deserve yeah. to be mocked. One of them is a fertilizer salesman. He just says, "I sell shit." Uh, yeah. The. Uh, there's this old, very kindly British couple who's, uh, it's like, why don't you sit with us? And we're trying this. What do you do? Oh, we, we're in the hand grenade business. <laughs> we used to do landmines, but no, I own they, those fell out of fashion and we lost so much money when people stopped buying landmines from us. Yeah. <laughs> they made a pretty, uh, pretty fitting fate. It's weird when you think that like for literally everything out there, there's at least one family probably yeah. that's like made all of their money on it. Yeah. Like the screw, like a, like a, t- <laughs> like a little screwdriver, like a, yeah. yeah, like the you know, just like you'd use the screw in like a table or something like that. There's one company that makes a lot of screws. I'm sure there's multiple, mm. but somewhere out there, there's a whole screw family. Oh, there's there's like an, in, an industry for everything. Um, yeah, Mike Nesmith, uh, late late a member of the Monkeys. Yeah, uh, 
was member of the monkeys also film producer he, mm-hmm. he was behind uh repo man mm-hmm. uh he was also behind time rider if you remember that he yeah. wrote that movie well, good for him uh he wrote a film called the northfield cemetery massacre so he's into uh is into I like that movie actually yeah, he was into movies for a little bit yeah he didn't need to be a musician he didn't need to be a film producer he was the liquid paper heir. Wow. His family invented liquid paper. So and there you go. <laughs> yeah. There's always one. And none of them are in my family. <laughs> yeah. yeah. God um, damn it. Um, Roll those we, dice. We've, we've talked yeah, a lot about uh, Mark Edward Hoyk. His yeah. family uh, like was into like turkey lacers and little kitchen yeah, gadgets. So if you cool. look on the back of your kitchen gadget, it might say his name on it. Hoyk. That's kind of cool. Anyway, um, well, it sounds like so. It sounds like a good movie, but maybe not a great. Uh, I like what Ruben Ostlund is doing. He's trying yeah. to make sort of a gross, almost Bunuel type satire of wealth, right? And he's really trying to take the wealthy down. And the scene where they're all trying to be uh, trying to be in control of the situation mm. when their own guts sort of betray them. Yeah. The, the, the puking scene is so hilarious. Uh, <laughs> I'm happy. For, I'm happy the puking scene worked out so well. It worked you. out so well. It's really. It's just really, really funny. Uh, in a really disgusting kind of way. It's completely gross. You want to see this in a th- like a full theater where everybody's just like moaning and groaning at the sight of all the gross stuff because that's yeah. really fun. Um, but I, I feel like he makes his point and could have made and didn't have to sort of keep on repeating that kind of point and the. Conclusions it comes to uh, aren't like they were made. They were made clear much much earlier. Mm-hmm. So uh, I feel like yeah, it's sort of like didn't really know how to conclude the story in a really kind of interesting way. Uh, the second and third parts are good, but yeah, uh, mm-hmm. the quote main characters aren't the main characters, so we don't need to spend so much time with them. There's a little too much of it, and the point is a little too blunt yeah. to require this much space. Got it. Makes sense. Mm. All right. The last movie we're reviewing on this week's critically acclaimed is a new Stephen King adaptation that got quietly like just sort of tossed out on Netflix this week. There's a lot of those. Uh, I I saw one. What was the one with Thomas Jane? 1922. Uh, 1922. Yeah. That that was like Tales from the Crypt episode. It was like a Tales from the Crypt episode, but it was feature length. Um, That that one didn't get like a lot of, a lot of ballyhoo. I I didn't particularly care for that one. I don't know what Thomas Jane was doing his performance. I think he was trying so weirdest voice. Trying so hard to just be an actor in that one. And I think he just like Thomas Thomas Jane's pretty good. Yeah, He's uh, not a bad actor. He was just trying so hard to put on like a big, like, character that it became the movie was about thomas jane trying to act and not the actual <laughs> plot and the movie was it's kind of thin on plot it probably was closer to like a short than it needed mm. to be a film um this one's riding on the edge of that too although i think it's better made it's from the writer director john lee hancock who is one of those directors who just occasionally directs a thing and it's usually semi a big deal uh-huh. whether or not it's any good uh you might remember from the oscar-winning movie the blind side Starring Sandra Bullock. Um, yeah. Uh, you know what? The movie is well directed. Whether Blind or not you feel... It, yeah, the direction is, is doing its job. I, I suppose so. Yeah. I, I just... I don't... I think the subject matter doesn't work. Uh, he directed The Founder with Michael Keaton. I miss that. It's, he directed... It's about uh, Roy Kroc, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. He directed The Rookie, a very well-liked uh, 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 baseball movie with Dennis Quaid. Uh, and most recently, he directed the... Wow, what a cast, but man, what a crappy movie. Uh, crime thriller, The Little Things with Denzel Washington oh, and Robbie Malik. Uh, yeah, oh, not a good film. No. So real mixed bag. Occasionally he'll make something like really well. Occasionally he'll make something bad really well. <laughs> but he always brings like some some quality to it. And this uh, new one is he's written and directed is uh, based off a Stephen King novella. It's called Mr. Harrigan's Phone. 
Mr. Harrigan's phone is a, an unexpectedly mild Stephen King horror story. It's not very intense. It's actually a uh, very slice of lifey for most of it. Uh, it stars Jaden Martell, who's from the It movies. Mm. As a teenager in a small town in Maine. What? Wait, in a Stephen King story? I know, right? Uh, is, is he also a writer and an alcoholic? He's not an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> But he will be a writer. Uh, so he's <laughs> a lot of uh, alcoholic writers from Maine in Stephen King yeah, stories. Uh, anyway, he's uh, Stephen King. By the way, has very been yeah. very uh, candid about his own uh, struggles with addiction. And indeed, so. he's put it in a lot of his stories. A lot yeah. of his stories of characters who are wrestling with addiction. Something Stephen King knows well. Um, he plays a teenager in a small town in Maine, and for many years he was, has been hired to read to a somewhat reclusive uh, millionaire played by Donald Sutherland. Oh, okay. Uh, and uh, he just comes over and reads books to him. Because mm. his eyesight isn't as good as it used to be. And uh, he's been doing that for many, many years. And they've formed not a, you know, they're not cuddly. Because mm. Donald Sutherland's playing kind of an asshole. It's kind of like a... A regard. Uh, yeah, like they, there's a there's a respect there. And they, yeah. you know, he's, he's one of the few constants in Donald Sutherland's life. And indeed, Donald Sutherland's one of the few constants in the kid's life. His mother died when he was very, very young. His father, uh, played by an actor named Joe Tippett... I love his performance in this because he doesn't get to do a lot, but every time you showed up, you can tell he's really lonely and wishes his son would hang out with him more. And it just feels like you just feel like this overwhelming swell of pity for him when he's doing actually very little. Mm. It's good performance, but not doing a lot. Um, but they form like a close relationship, and uh, it takes place in the early two thousands or the mid two thousands rather. And the big uh, uh, sort of status symbol. At high school, he goes to his first year in high school, is a smartphone, which is relatively new. And indeed, the movie is set, like, a lot of movies set right after the iPhone just came out. So uh, the coolest kids in school have an iPhone. And this when, is what he wants. That was, like, late 2000s. Yeah, like right? 2007. Okay. Yeah. So, the movie takes place over the kids' life. So it's early 2000s to, like, the early 2010s. Um, but a big chunk of it takes place right after the iPhone comes out, and he really wants an iPhone. Hmm. And he ends up getting one for Christmas from his father. Meanwhile, Mr. Harrigan, who only ever gets him for Christmas one scratch-off lottery ticket, which means he usually gets him nothing, this year the lottery ticket actually paid off. Oh my, And he got okay. a few thousand dollars out of it. Okay. And he decides, uh, as a thank you to Mr. Harrigan, he's also going to get him a smartphone. And this way they can like sort of talk to each other outside of their little meetings together. Hmm. Mr. Harrigan isn't interested. But when he finds out you can check stock numbers in real time and they can actually make him more money, he's like, okay, fair enough. <laughs> so he takes this phone and becomes a little addicted to the phone. And he certainly, there's a great speech Donald Sutherland has where he talks about how speaking purely as like an asshole capitalist, he realizes this is wrong mm. because I'm reading the Wall Street Journal on this and I'm reading it for free. When I pay to subscribe for that, how are we going to put that genie back in a bottle? <laughs> I'm not even seeing any advertisements on this thing yet. How are we going to make? How are they supposed to make money off of that? What's going to happen when all of this information can be wildly disseminated and people can use it to mislead? This is an absolute nightmare for the economy. <laughs> and you know what? He's he's right. And obviously uh, Stephen King is saying this with the benefit of hindsight, but it makes sense that his character would be on that wavelength. Yeah. And then as soon as he gives that speech, he goes right back to looking at his phone. Because <laughs> he's addicted to it now. Mr. Harrigan is an old man. Mr. Harrigan dies. 
Nothing, nothing dramatic, just dies one day. And our young hero feels really bad. And as a, sort of a weird gesture, he takes Mr. Harrigan's phone and he puts it in his pocket as, uh, at the funeral. And he's buried with the phone. And then as he's really, really sad and mourning one of his few friends, <clears throat> he texts him at night just to say goodbye. Mm. And when he wakes up, Mr. Harrigan has texted him back. <laughs> Love it. All right. But the text is a little unintelligible, but it's clearly like someone texted him back from that number. Mm. And eventually he, he realizes that Mr. Harrigan is definitely dead. And he's speaking to him from beyond the grave. And he can... It's like personal shopper stuff. Yeah, and... a little personal shopper stuff. And he realizes that Mr. Harrigan, who, if he liked you, he was a straight shooter. If he didn't like you, he would destroy you. Mr. Harrigan can be asked for things. And he no, realizes... He has like the sort of yeah. demonic yeah. wish-granting power now. Yeah, it doesn't really grant wishes, but like he could have like, Hey, Mr. Harrigan, my bully at school is being mean to me. Something bad will happen to that bully. Uh-huh. And he realizes that his phone is now quite literally uh, a morally questionable problem solver. It makes life easier in a lot of ways, but it's probably not good for you. All right. And that premise... Like, like a phone. Like huh. a phone. Yeah. This is, you know, it's a little, it's a little obvious once you, the movie finally gets around to making its point. It's elegantly presented. It's mm. it's not a lot of incident in the movie, but it, it hums along. Uh, all the performances are really, really good. Uh, the score really tells the story quite nicely. I'm very fond. Um, it's probably could have been done in a short, once again, like 1922. This probably could have been a very good short. Feature, probably unnecessary, considering that the point is pretty straightforward. Do, do you know if the, mm. is the original story a short story? It's a novella. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it works fine as a feature film. It's just maybe not as in, it's not as full of incident and terror as you might expect for a feature film mm. version of a Stephen King story. But um, it's got a thoughtful idea, and I what I appreciate is that it's one of the movies that takes smartphones, which for a horror slash thriller writer has got to be the bane of your fucking existence. Right. It just makes everything easier for the characters and you either have to go out of your way to write it out of a story or you have to find some way to neutralize it half the time. One of my favorite examples of this is in the movie, um, David Gordon Green's first Halloween movie. Okay. When Andy Matichak is so mad at her boyfriend that like she drops a cell phone and salsa just so you won't have it later <laughs> in the film. And I'm like, Oh, we can do better than that. Come on. <laughs> Jesus they're, they're, Christ. They're trying to be creative about they're it. They're trying to, that. but that's forced, man. That doesn't make any... No one would fucking do that. That's weird. It doesn't It doesn't read. It reads right. really, really weird. Um, So I appreciate that Stephen King, way better than that other book he did, Cell, which oh, is basically yeah. like everyone who was talking on their cell phone at it a certain a time zombie, becomes a zombie. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that maybe when that book came out, that made sense. But now everyone's texting. Almost no one's on their phone that much. Like, oh, yeah. the whole world isn't going to be on their phone simultaneously. It's actually made a pretty small percentage now. Now everyone's texting. It's mm. different. So that one was trying to be topical. This one's actually, again, using some hindsight mm. and understanding that what the phone represents. It's not just new technology scary. Yeah. It's that the phone has become uh, uh, something that we're overly reliant on mm. that solves some problems but doesn't actually but, fix us in any way. And, and creates a bunch of a whole host of new problems. Creates yeah. new problems as well and it doesn't make us better people. Yeah, And that's kind of smartly explored. Mm. 
okay. over the course of this film. So I rather like this film. It's not amazing. It's not one of the upper echelon Stephen King adaptations, but it's far from the worst. And yeah, it's it shouldn't be overlooked. It's it's quite good, mm. but it's not like absolutely terrifying, and it's not so unbelievably brilliant. You need to seek it out. But if you're interested in the works of Stephen King, if what anything I just said sounds interesting to you, solid flick. Mm. That's all. That's all. Leave it there. So it is time to review films on our critically acclaimed scale. Uh, that scale goes from C minus to C plus. Quite simply, a C minus is below average. We don't recommend that movie, whether it's mm. just terrible or just not particularly good. C minus. C uh, a C is average. Mixed bag. Some good. Some bad. Just okay. Better for some audiences than others. And a C plus is above average. We genuinely recommend that movie. We might even think it's brilliant. Hmm. On that note, I'm going to give Mr. Harrigan's phone a high C. Okay. Just a solid. If you're into this kind of like a a, a mild scary stories, only it isn't trying to like scare the pants off of you, but just kind of get under your skin. Rather smart, good performances. I quite liked it. All right. uh, Ruben Ostlin's The Triangle of Sadness. The Triangle of Sadness. Uh, I'm going to give that one a C. I, okay. I feel like it could be a lot more pointed, a lot more, mm-hmm. uh, a, a lot more clearer in its ideas. Mm-hmm. I think it, it kind of. Uh, I don't want to say meanders. I use that word too much, but I, I do feel like it. Mm-hmm. It. it, it adds so much uh, way too much dead weight for something yeah. that could be a lot more powerful without it uh, uh, that said uh, I'm, I'm definitely giving it a C for the puke uh, <laughs> there's so much puke see it for the puke see, co- come for the puke stay for more puke <laughs> that should be your Rotten Tomatoes quote <laughs> alright let's see here uh, Todd Field's Tar uh, Tar C plus yeah. this is one of the best movies of the year this is mm. such an engaging character st- engaging I did it again yeah. uh, so, it's one of the one of the one of the buzzwords yeah uh, just a, a wonderful character study of this mm. person a lot of uh, sticky moral things that we're discussing right now explored fairly yeah uh, I just I, and Kate Blanchett is completely brilliant so yeah absolutely yeah. Kate Blanchett is brilliant I, but I, I don't want to overlook the fact that all the supporting performances are really brilliant as oh, well yeah, yeah. Uh, Nina Haas Naomi Berlant they're, they're really really great yeah. uh, what, what's his name from uh, Indiana Jones and Star Wars uh, oh. plays the old mentor I forget um, I forget who uh, but he's great um yeah, no, it's a really exceptional character study, and I appreciate that it is a film about issues in ethics and morality that we're discussing right now, hmm. but it is doing so in a way that is surprisingly nuanced for being right yeah. in the thick. Uh, yeah. N- nuanced, fair, not judgmental, yeah. not mm-hmm. broad. Like, it's yeah. actually discussing a lot of the details of these things. No, I think I think almost anyone can get something out of this movie. It is long, and it is kind of a downer, but it is mm. absolutely riveting, and I'm totally into it, and I agree. It's one of the best films I've seen so far this year. Uh, let's see here. Werewolf by Night. Uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of bland. It's mm. kind of almost like a nothing little trifle. There's, mm. there's no... It's not really scary enough to be... Uh, mm. uh, like a Halloween standard, but it's just interesting enough that it stands apart from some of it, its peers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can't really give it anything higher than a C. Yeah. Um, if, if that doesn't sound interesting to you, then don't bother, but it's yeah. still, still a C. It's still competent. It's you kinda, still well put together. You kind of hit the nail on the head for me. And, and, and it's something where I was trying to get at mm-hmm. where I said it would have been better. If this movie was set at Halloween. Uh-huh. I think if you had gone full Halloween and you could have made this a Halloween standard and that mm-hmm. could have just given it a little bit more usefulness. Yeah. What have you know, if, if it were 
spookier, scarier. Yeah. If it had just Halloween paraphernalia in it, it would be nice to put on at Halloween time. Mm-hmm. And I think it would have, I think it would have solidified it as a C plus for me. Um, but, uh, or just any sort of like more heft to yeah. it would have given it a C plus, but I like everyone in it. I think Gal Garcia Bernal is just, it's just a nice energy. I think he's yeah. just good in the MCU. Is, is there, yeah. There's a character in Marvel called Halloween Jack, isn't there? Hello, because uh, he he. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm telling on myself here. He has a character from X Men 2099. Mm. There is a character from uh, Hall. I forgot about Halloween. Halloween Jack. Jack is like a really cool yeah. looking character. Just throw a guy like that in there. Yeah, make whatever. Make, make a he's Halloween a, character. He, yeah. he, he, his name is Halloween Jack. Fine, he's a time traveler. There are plenty of uh, listen. Marvel has plenty of characters in and around the supernatural realm mm. that they could do stuff. There's literally a character called the Boogeyman. Okay, and that just, character, yeah, yeah. there was an issue of Power Pack that he was in, where I don't know who did the art for that, but they scared the shit out of me. <laughs> like, and they were going to do a Power Pack movie. They were. They were gonna do a, um, there was a pilot episode we were going to cover once. And I, Wait, did we cover that? No, we didn't do Power Pack. We Power almost Pack, did. There but, was, uh, it was on a poll and it, it didn't win. Uh, yeah. But uh, look up the uh, sort of the history of, of Marvel movies yeah. and read up on the artisan deal. Uh, artisan artisan films, the the, the company mm. that put out like pie and a lot of these sort of yeah. high profile art pictures. Eventually, I think they got swept up by Lionsgate. Yeah, yeah. They, they were absorbed into Lionsgate. But yeah, they made it. They made a deal with Marvel when they were mm. you know just trying shopping their stuff around. Yeah. Uh, to make a bunch of Marvel movies, and the yeah. uh, Blade goes back there. Morbius started back then. I think and they were going to make a Power was Pack. Punisher was yeah. one of them, and yeah, yeah they were going to make a, a Power Pack movie. Yeah. Wild, mm. yeah. They they knew it was coming. They just didn't have the, the couldn't, their, couldn't quite put it together. Their initial plan was Captain America the film and Thor the TV series. Those were mm. their first big projects, and mm. just those things just never got off the ground. Never quite worked. Anyway, uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll give it a high C. I enjoyed it quite a bit, uh, mm. but yeah, it's it, there's something about it that never quite goes to the next mm. level. Uh, and then finally, Hellraiser. I'm going to give this, and a part of this is in context. Mm. So d- just bear that in mind because it's been so long since we've had a good Hellraiser. I'm going to give this a very low C plus. Okay. Because although I think there are definitely things that don't push this over the edge, like uh, a Werewolf by Night into greatness, I actually think this is just even though it's longer than it needs to be, it gives me what what you need. Okay. It it has the kills, it has the Cenobites, it has the mythos, mm. it satisfies. But there are definitely things about it that could have made it one of the all-timer Hellraiser movies. But yeah. nothing that tells, nothing that's me telling you, if you've never seen a Hellraiser movie, mm. this isn't something to check out. Yeah. If you've never seen Hellraiser, you'll get it. It's pretty cool. Yeah, the, uh, if you like the other Hellraiser movies, it's the best one in so long. I'm willing to give it a couple of bonus points. Uh, I'm willing to give it a couple of bonus points just to sort of solidify it as a C+. I, I suppose. I, I suppose yeah. that's fair. Um, yeah. It's it's not a great movie, uh, but I do like it. Uh, so I'm, I'm just going to give it a C. Um, not going to give it a C plus. But uh, that said, if I could sort of put a little asterisk by asterisk by that and put it, uh, give a C plus to all of like the Cenobite stuff. Yeah, because the Cenobite stuff is great. All that shit. All that shit rules. Uh, I mean, like I, I wish sex were back into it. I wish it were right. a horny story. It's not. As a, like to mm. your point, it's a little bit more about addiction, even though not explicitly. A lot of dead weight, a lot of uninteresting characters, a lot mm. of padding. Uh, but the, the Cenobite stuff is all really wonderful. Those are great yeah. monsters. See, that's what I can't, I can't mm. not give that a C plus for me. For okay. me, it's like, that's what it needed. Just needed good the, monsters. The, the, everything else, it would have been nice if, every, if other stuff was even better, but it delivered what it needed to deliver mm. that hadn't been delivered in a long time, which is Cenobites that were freed mm. from the weird 
Catholic accoutrement of yeah. the of the straight to video stuff. It understood what Hellraiser was basically about, even though it wasn't necessarily the best Hellraiser. And it's I was engaged the entire time. You have to take a drink. Like <laughs> I was, I was, I was enjoying the film. Yeah, just that's there's stuff that kept it from being an all timer. But anyway, that is it for critically acclaimed. Come back next week. We're going to be reviewing the new Halloween movie. There's Halloween no ends for now. Uh, and if you expect this to be the last Halloween movie, you're going to be very either very know, disappointed how, or very happy. I don't know. You know, they should make a movie about uh, Michael Myers finally facing off against Laurie Strode. Ooh, that would be fun. Yeah, yeah we could. Get, hell, they could make like seven or eight of those. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Anyway, uh, the, there's another Halloween is, movie. It's out. it's the thirteenth Halloween movie, mm-hmm. which means Halloween. Uh-huh. Beat Jason Voorhees to the thirteenth sequel. The Friday the Thirteenth <laughs> movies only made twelve movies. Yeah, they never made it. Halloween to that 13th. made it to thirteen. That was their goal. Down. They were going to make thirteen. At least thirteen, right? How do you skip when you hit twelve? How do you not get to thirteen? Like, just push it out. Just mm. race it into theater. I don't know. There's been legal troubles. Hopefully, it's going to get resolved. Yeah, there's one been time. A, yeah, a lot, a lot of. We'd, legal we'd all like another Jason. one, right? It'd be fun. Because they're so lo-fi. Like, they have such low ambition that I don't mind if they just keep doing it. Well, here, here's my hope for, for Friday the 13th. Uh-huh. They finally make that 13th movie. The, all of the legal stuff gets cleared up. It's uh-huh. like, are you finally going to do it? And it gets all this, yeah. uh, all this hype, all this publicity. And then it and sucks. It's, and it's just another shitty sequel. Like, <laughs> right? nobody cares. I, I would, I'd be fine with that. Yeah, yeah. That's part of the appeal. Is that they're, most of them are just schlock. Yeah. I think I'm fine with <laughs> I, it. I would love for 13 yeah. just to be schlock. Not a button on the mythology. Nope. Nothing Don't important need... happens in it. It's no just another schlocky slasher. Just Jason, they, they build a carnival on the, the campgrounds, and oh, it's yeah. Jason at a carnival. Boom. That that would have been fine. Jason at a carnival. Why not? I'd pretty see that. That sounds fun. You could do totally. Jason <laughs> part thirteen. Jason goes on the tilt of world. Like, you know, just imagine, like you know, you're you're in, uh, uh, you're on the roller coaster and it's doing the loop de loop, and it's like, and all of a sudden, do you see do you see the machete and like everyone on the gets oh, decapitated at once. Here's the thing. Uh, right when they're upside down at the top of the loop, uh-huh. uh, uh, Jason drops his machete and then it loops back down and lands on a victim when it hits the bottom. <laughs> Perfect. There you go. Done. I, I wrote your movie for you. <laughs> Where's our check? <laughs> Give us a check. Come on. And I will definitely call it Jason Goes on the Tilt World. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that is it for Critically Claim. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Feel free to leave us uh, an email or uh, write us a, a handwritten letter. If you're so inclined, our email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net. Whitney, what is our P.O. box? Yeah, send us a physical letter to the uh, P.O. box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. We've been a little inconsistent with We've Got Mail, but we will have a new episode this week. Don't worry. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll answer your questions. We'll respond to your criticisms. We're curious about whatever you have to say about anything we discussed this week or anything at all. Mm-hmm. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we're also uh, have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, where all of our new shows uh, are presented free of commercial interruption. So if you if you just sign up for $1 a month, you'll get our shows free of commercial interruption. You'll also get exclusive shows even at $1 a month. We have our show uh, Step Me Up, Step Me Down, which we have a new episode to record in a day or two. All about the Step Up franchise. We have a new episode of our Oscars podcast, Only the Best, coming up sometime this week is the plan. We have all our yesterdays, our Star Trek podcast, reviewing every single episode of Star Trek. Uh, we have commentary tracks. We're going to do a commentary track for Morbius. Yes, <laughs> Morbius. And uh, we do trivia nights with our patrons. Uh, we're going to do one later this month in which we do, uh, in which I'm going to host everyone in a big round of horror trivia 
for Halloween. So uh, thank you everybody who shows up for those. Thank you to everybody who uh, helps us out on Patreon because that's why this show exists. It couldn't otherwise. It would not be even remotely possible. Um, and of course, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. And if you want soap, head on over to patreon.com slash saltcatsoap. That's a Soap of the Month Club I run with my partner, M. Lapis da Silva. Uh, if you can either sign up for one soap a month or two soap a month, and we have polls where we you help us decide what soap we're going to make. We make designer soaps. Whitney, are the soaps any good? They're good. Thank you. Yeah. C plus. A ringing endorsement. <laughs> um, we have the, we actually have werewolf soaps that we uh, we shipped for Ooh. Halloween, uh, but uh, next time we're going to have uh, sort of a, a cozy beverage soap. So it'll be inspired by coffee or tea in November. Ooh. It'll be real, real nice. We've made coffee and tea soaps before. They're really wonderful. Uh, so thank you everybody who has already uh, subscribed to that. We'd love to see you if you haven't. And um, that's a wrap. And that's the end of the podcast. And that's how we end podcasts here. When we say everyone's a critic. That's, there you go. That's what we do. It's late and I'm tired. Everyone's a critic. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.